Welcome everyone to episode 10 of Quill and Tankard. Today we're going to be talking about the finale of season 7 of Game of Thrones entitled The Dragon and the Wolf. The Wolf and the Dragon. I can't remember which one it is actually. The Bear and the Maiden Fair. <laughs> the Bear and the Dragon Fair. This podcast will be spoilers extended, which means it can include information from all of the books and every episode of the show, including the sample chapters from The Winds of Winter. As always, I am one of your hosts, Bookshelf Stud, better known as Aegon. And I'm another one of your hosts, Glass Table Girl, better known as Aegon. And I'm another one of your hosts, Joe Magician, also known as Aegon. I'm Admiral Kurt, I'm the editor, and my name is Aegon. Today we're joined by quite a few special guests. Hi, I'm Walda, also known as Fat Aegon. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) I'm Jen Snow, also known as Aegon. And I am Brendan B. Fish, known as Objectively Aegon. Well, before we start talking about this episode scene by scene, because there were quite a lot of scenes, 80 minutes worth of them, I'm just curious, what did you guys think of the episode holistically? For me, I I mean, I really enjoyed it. I thought it really tied up a lot. And more than that, this was one of those times when I felt like we were getting some stuff that was going to be in the winds of winter, and we were really hitting on some actual plot points for the series as a whole. So that was kind of exciting for me. Um, Eliana, what, Aegon, what did you think? <laughs> um, I liked it. I liked it way more than episode six. I thought it was up there with the spoils of war, which I think might have been my favorite episode this season. Um, I think it wrapped up things while setting us up for season eight pretty well. Thank you, Aegon. Uh, so Aegon, what did you think about it? Well, Aegon, I really liked this episode. I thought, uh, like you guys were saying, it tied up a lot of stuff really well. I still did not like what happened in Winterfell. I thought that mm. entire plot, Same. even with the very satisfying end of that plot, I felt like that really dragged me down the last few episodes, but I thought everything else was great. Aegon. Aaron. Admiral Aaron. Hey, what's up? Admiral Aegon. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the episode? I thought it was definitely better than episodes five and six. I would not put it up there with the spoils of war, but it was it was one of the better episodes I thought of the season. Uh, It was pretty decent. I just kind of discount all the Winterfell scenes at this point. They don't really exist to me, and I just just kind of whatever. I just can't. Wow. Okay. All right. I I agree with everyone else regarding Winterfell. I felt like the the last bit that we got here in this episode was satisfying, and I wish that the rest of the season had sort of led more logically to that conclusion. Other than that, I the best word I would think for this episode would be compelling. Hmm. Okay, Jen Sand. I mean Aegon. What did you think of the episode? <laughs> I'm glad to see Littlefinger finally get his comeuppance. Overall, great. I liked it. Awesome. I agree with the most part with Aegon on this episode in (laughs) that I liked a lot of it and the stuff I didn't like wasn't as egregiously bad as previous episodes are. Yeah. At the same time, though, and I I said this when I was a guest in the Spose of War episode, is that I feel like I'm grading the episodes from season five onwards on a curve because if you compare it to the first four seasons of the show, Mm -hmm. I would say it doesn't rank that highly because, I mean, that's the lens you have to evaluate it. Obviously, you have to evaluate it in a, you know, for the episode itself. But even in terms of final episodes of the season, this one would be pretty low on my list of mm. of which of, of best to worst. But, I'm, you know, obviously, it's the, the Winterfell stuff was not terrific. And some of the character motivations I didn't understand, even though the, the actors themselves really acted the hell out of all of these scenes, I didn't necessarily... Um, get into some of the stuff. Some of the stuff I really grooved to, but a, a lot of the stuff I didn't 
unfortunately. The, the bee fish has lost his groove, maybe? How bee fish yeah, got yeah. his groove back? Yeah, I need to get my groove back. <laughs> he had groove? I did not. Uh, if we get 10,000 people watching this, do you want to do a dance? No. Oh, we can wait. We can release Aegon singing The Reigns of Castamere. Oh, yes, that's true. Aegon did a really good job with that. Yeah, that's true. I think Aegon still has a clip saved on his computer somewhere. I do. Aegon has a clip. I just need to know how to auto tune it. We can't start talking in third person and also use Aegon because that's just going to. I'm going to die. We we don't talk about ourselves in third person. Aegon, gun do this. (laughs) So the episode picks up with sort of their main set piece in the dragon pit. And we get a whole bunch of different combinations of characters all catching up with one another. Jamie and Braun obviously kick off the episode by just watching everything arrive, Helm's Deep style, at the at the walls of King's Landing. So I really enjoyed the visual of the Unsullied arriving and then the Dothraki arriving. The contrast between the infantry lining up shoulder to shoulder in formation and then the Dothraki kind of coming in. You can see the different almost fighting styles, the Unsullied being ordered, their formations were still... And then when you get to the Dothraki, they're come pouring out of the forest and, and moving all over the place in the, between the yeah. lines of the Encelade, which was a, like a cool visual and a cool contrast. Yeah, m- much like Hannah Montana, Danny has the best of both worlds, I think. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've ever really seen them together like that. And it sort of yeah. hit me like the historical context of that Danny actually got these two armies to work together. They have been historical enemies going back centuries. The Unsullied versus the Dothraki. The Unsullied got their, That's true. Yeah. their reputation for killing like 40,000 Dothraki and they're working together for her. Yeah. That's a good point. Following Jamie and Bronn's conversation, Tyrion and John talk a little bit about King's Landing and John's never seen King's Landing before as have some, many of these characters, I think. This is kind of a big first for some people. There's preparations being made all over the place as Sandor gets his buddy ready, his little buddy he made north of the wall last episode. They seem to have really bonded, Sandor and his white. It was that little toy that he never had. His little knight, yeah. Oh, it's that toy soldier, yeah. I thought it was kind of a nice uh, shout out to book readers that Alistair Thorne previously tried to do this in a hand stop moving and there was a little bit of tension before he kicked it. Like, did it die? Mm -hmm. They're really far from it. Yeah, Yeah, I was afraid that that happened again. I guess the Knight's King got like a Wi-Fi extender or something. Yeah. (laughs) Just, you know, boost his signal a little bit. I mean, the hand worked even when Alistair Thorne went down there it's just that it took too long because Tyrion is like a butt that's what he said <laughs> perfect Tyrion that was, yeah that was really yes. good <laughs> thanks thanks you have this fearsome warrior in, in Sandor Clegane who got his first kill at the age of 12 during Robert's Rebellion is, is what it seems like mm-hmm. and he's terrified of this undead creature that's in his midst and it reinforces to the audience that these things are incredibly fearful and Hideous and, and terrifying, even to the most seasoned warriors of Westeros. And the pro Danny side mm-hmm. wants this to serve as a wake up call to the rest of the country that, look, this is coming out, something we should all be terrified for. And so having the cinematography of Sandor being real scared about it helps reinforce that that image for the, um, the scene to come in the dragon pit. Yeah. It's also very Sandor from the last episode where he was throwing the rocks at it that he would run down like a little kid and kick it and then run away. <laughs> I bet he did that like every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> He like goes down there at night and just yells at it. Still in there, huh? I can't get out. <laughs> Runs away. It's like Varys with his sorcerer in a box. So everyone's making preparations, including Cersei, who gives Sir Gregor a killing order. Cersei's list. Danny first, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then Tyrion. 
And then yes. John, because John is completely harmless. <laughs> <laughs> Cersei's list is a little different from Arya's list. But that's okay. Interesting parallel. Yeah. Because oh. we had a parallel between that Brian brought up last cast between Arya and Cersei and their relationship with their father. So it's a bit, mm. bit more of this. Mm, yeah. I have another one mm. later. Oh, boy. No. That's a, that's a teaser for those of you who have made it this far in the podcast. Stick around. <laughs> <laughs> So, but then we get a bit of a history lesson, although I was disappointed we didn't get the storming of the dragon pit as part mm. of that history yeah. lesson. That's true. That's the Same. best part of the dragon pit. But we do get some explanation from Jorah, Missandei, and Tyrion. Is the dragon pit in the show outside of King's Landing? Because it didn't look like it was on one of the hills inside of the city, yeah. did it? Um, I thought it was inside the city because huh. just because... Jamie and Bronn brought them in. Why would they be escorting them outside the city? I get what you're saying, though, because what there's the scene of them walking up to it and it looks like it's in a forest, yeah, yeah. like a mile yeah. outside of King's Landing or something. I was going to say, I don't know if we've ever seen the, the dragon pit sort of on wide shots or anything before. No, no, it's not there. Well, they mm -hmm. changed the original shot of the Sept of Baelor. It used to just be spires in like season one when you see the wide shots mm -hmm. because they didn't have the budget for the set until later. Yeah. That's why Ned's execution isn't on the steps of Baelor like they show later when the Tyrell army marches on the Sept. Right. It looks completely different. But, so why, I don't know why they didn't just go back and add it into the city and retcon that again as well. <laughs> They're not consistent with it already. So no, and nobody really cares. No. Yeah. It, well, except us. Yeah, apparently. and yet here we are. <laughs> We're the only ones that notice. Well, yeah. speaking speaking of pedantry, so how come the dragons couldn't get out of the dragon pit? If I mean, like they're burning down Harrenhal basically with their dragon fire. It used to have a dome on it. The dome fell. Yeah, but a dome of what? Stone, I think. Yeah, and they melted hair and all. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, but they were little. But they didn't start out little when they put them in the dragon pit. Right, because yeah. then they wouldn't have had to build a cage. Well, they weren't trapped right. there. Maybe dragons don't like a certain type of stone, like <laughs> limestone or something, and they just will <laughs> leave it alone. It could have been like they didn't want what ended up happening to happen. Like, the dragons aren't dumb. They didn't want to, like, burn the dome and stuff so that it would end up with melting rock falling on them, I guess. But mm. also they were smaller and mm. perhaps their fire just wasn't as hot as Beleriand's. Right. it was Beleriand's. Right. Um, yeah fire that melted here in Hall. But unlike where we see with Viserion and Rhaegal, they were not trapped in the dragon pit. They could come and go as they pleased, whereas they burned out of the Great Pyramid because they were prisoners. I thought they burrowed. Well, they were held in by chains. They, they were chained in in the dragon pit. That's how the mob was able to kill them, I believe, was that yeah. they couldn't escape. Mm. They just said in the show is that they built the dragon pit to contain the dragons because they were just going around mm. eating animals and stuff, mm. right? Like mm. I always figured it was just like you need a place for your pets to live. Like they got to sleep somewhere. It's the Snoopy house. Yeah, exactly. Aw. I'm going to build yeah. my tiny dog a huge arena <laughs> and uh, <laughs> put like a dome over top of it and you know, bones of his victims. Anyway, the dragon pit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of bones. Tyrion and Podrick reunite, which is nice. It is very nice, I think, getting all these people back together. Matt, you had a really important question in the document. I think you should jump in with it. <laughs> well, I had, I had two things. The first one was I felt like the last few episodes were like an extended high school reunion. Like Aww. if you just mash them all together, that's like awkward interactions of like 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 five ten years later. Everyone's like, "Oh hey, how's it going, man? Oh, pretty cool." Oh God, no, I definitely don't want to go to my high school. <laughs> my high school reunion was quite good. I don't know about yours, but the second thing was, um, Bron says that Tyrion and Pod, one of them could suck the other's magic. <laughs> 
We can we say that? No, you can't. Can we say magic rooster? You couldn't splice <laughs> in like a rooster magic, sound effect over time. Yeah, magic Aegon. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Oh yeah, you could do that. One of them could suck the other's magic Aegon. Which one is has the magic Aegon? I think it must be implied to be Pod, right? Because that's like the meme. Yes, but Tyrion and the whole thing with the slavers, mm-hmm. right? Where the dwarves have the magic Aegons. The human horn. The human, human horn. Yeah, that's are all Aegons magic? Maybe. Maybe. As uh, Jamie and Bronn say at the start of the episode, maybe it just all comes back to Aegons in the end. Aegons it's, all the way yeah. down. That's not, there's a lot of reunions happening. One of them, of course, is Sandor and Brienne. Last scene, uh, one of them was biting off the other's ear and flinging him off a cliff. Surprisingly amiable. It's their family. Own- so many of these reunions are, oh, yeah, I remember that time you tried to kill me. <laughs> or the, remember that time you killed my son? And it's just like, oh. <laughs> Well, I kind of like this one because they had something else to talk about, and it's where Arya is at right yeah. now in her story. And it's like, oh, well, she can take care of herself now. And Sander, like, kind of gives this smile, but Aww. it's a little bit obscured by his beard. But he's like, <laughs> yeah. that's my girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I taught her a lot of what she knows. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, maybe Sandor kind of, like, feels like that's, like, the daughter in his life because he doesn't have any kids. So. Mm. so she didn't say, yeah, she's in Winterfell with her sister Sansa. Yeah. Uh, which, like, I mean, granted, yeah. the relationship between Sandor and Sansa is different in the show, but you'd think that Sandor would have some investment had Brienne mentioned, oh, yes, yeah, she's at home with her sister, the Lady of Winterfell, Sansa Stark, or something. <laughs> yeah, but they haven't seen. Yeah, I'm not thinking that she would. I'm not thinking she would be like. She would tell Sandor, like, oh, I knew that you knew Sansa. It would be more like, oh, she brings it up because, like, clearly that's the whole reason Brienne's even in King's Landing. And then Sandor would be like, Oh, Sansa Stark's alive, and okay. I don't know. He, like, cared about her. Yeah, it could easily have been slipped in as, like, a mention. Because they only have so much time, we're sacrificing a lot of depth. It's like, whenever people talk about Jon and nobody mentions the fact that he was dead and he should be (laughs) the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, it's like, they're just glossing over it, even though it's something that the characters would get hung up on, because they simply practically don't have the time to deal with it. That's a big problem of this whole season. Yes. They rushed everything, so there was no... I mean, there has to be a happy medium between dragging everything out over 10 episodes of traveling on the King's Road and boom, here everyone is. Yeah. I'm looking forward to next season's feature-length episodes for this exact reason, because I feel like they just need like 10 more minutes per episode this season could have mm-hmm. helped so much in so many storylines. Yeah. Is it confirmed um, that they're going to be doing episodes that long or is it just a rumor right uh, now? It's like interviews that they've had where they say like, well, we may need to have them be a lot longer yeah. or that could also be hyperbole. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I think it's it's more likely we'll see episodes sort of 80 minutes in length would probably be a happy medium that between right. the 60 minute standard Game of Thrones episode and the hour and a half standard movie yeah, with right. maybe the final episode being two hours long. I mean, that seems logical to me, but again... I don't know. I, and I agree that this season has just rushed its way towards the finish line. And for reasons that are not story related, but to get to the end of the story, if that makes sense. So yeah. having all, right. all these characters together in mm-hmm. the dragon pit is good. But like Fat Walda says, it's not something that's driven by the story. It's driven by an endpoint, which I think ends up 
working to the detriment of the story where you have characters flying across the map in one episode to you know the opposite quarters of Westeros and you do get that whiplash feel and that feeling just continues in this episode from all the mm. previous episodes we've gotten to yeah. yeah in the beginning of this episode jumps around a lot because you have all these little reunions between characters yes do they have time for that moment to sit there for a little bit longer yeah, no. This almost felt like, uh, in some ways, the line in the rose when everybody comes back for that wedding at King's oh, Landing, yeah. where you could almost stick nearly the entire episode here, just characters catching up, and yeah. maybe they have a reception after their little meeting. You know, some, some <laughs> drinks and punch. That would be amazing. Some punch and pie, like a little cocktail hour sort of thing. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. A high school reunion. There's just like an open bar. Everyone parties. <laughs> it's fine. That would have been hilarious if they had a DJ at the the dragon pit scene who was like drowning out everybody. <laughs> The blue bard shows up. Ed Sheeran? <laughs> no, Hodor. Oh, yeah. Christian Nairn. He's a DJ in his own right. Right. Christian Nairn, please come on our podcast. So after Sandor and Brienne get back together, um, the other heroes of the Blackwater reunite, Tyrion and Bronn, which it seems like this scene could have been placed earlier when Tyrion and Bronn set up the meeting with Jamie in the basement Yeah. in King's Landing, but they sort of pushed it away until this last episode, Tyrion and Bronn talking. I read this uh, this scene as Tyrion being very worried about what's about to happen. He's like trying to reestablish his rapport with Bronn and being like, hey, are things okay right now? Like, am I about to be killed? Right. <laughs> and Bronn reacts normally. So he's like, okay, so maybe this won't go as terribly as I think. Uh, well, speaking of Bronn, he and Pod exit stage left as soon as they get in the dragon pit. Why? I mean, was that just, they just couldn't fit two more people in the dragon pit for a conversation? To me, it read like that they were increasing the tension. So you have Bronn and Podrick leaving, Mm -hmm. which to me set my Mm -hmm. spidey senses up to 11. Yeah, it was kind of like the Frey Squire to Rob Stark where he wasn't allowed to go to the Red Wedding. I was like, oh, is this about to happen? Oliver, yeah. Yeah, like how Bronn is escorting Pod out. Like he's like, okay, you get to live. Like, come with me. Yeah. I agree with Jeff. I thought that's kind of what was going on yeah. there. It's because Jerome Flynn was in a relationship with Lena Headey that went sour, and so they can't be in the same scene together. Really? So they just have to leave the same scene. Yeah. yeah that's why they did it. Yeah. So he had a convenient reason to leave. It's probably the, the actual reason, but I think the in-universe reason would be. Yeah. Yeah, they turned it into a, a, a story moment, I think. Yeah, um, it's good. Yeah, my, my heart was racing. Are they actually just going to kill everybody? They can't, right? Well, the, the, the thing that really, yeah. the thing that elevated the tension was also the use of silence in mm-hmm. this whole dragon pit scene where you have a bunch of chatterboxes walking into the dragon pit but when they get there a silence falls over all of danny's party I, i'm assuming you're projecting your own emotions onto the characters there but you're wondering if things are going to go real bad real fast in the dragon pit itself so it just it helps to heighten the tension so you have two characters leave the silence while you're waiting for cersei to arrive and you're like man how is this actually going yeah. to go down yeah I mean, I was watching it with the sound off at that point, and I could even feel the silence. Right. Just because it was in Blackwater Bay. Am I right? Because Euron's, Euron's ship is, is in, the, in the harbor. Hey. In episode six, Sandor was a bit of a protagonist. I mean, he the, the episode focused a lot on him and fire and all that. And that kind of continues. He keeps getting these little character moments with main characters. And this is him and Tyrion obviously talking about the city. And I think that sets it up well so that when Cersei does finally arrive, the mountain's presence is felt even harder. Did anyone think they were going to have it out right here, right now? Yeah. Yeah. I did not. No. Why is that, Jeff? I think that it wasn't properly set up. Like, seemingly Mm -hmm. the Sander-Gregor confrontation, I think, needs to have a lot more 
something leading into it, not just two characters happening to be in the same place. And I and I trust the showrunners mm-hmm. and the and the writers to do a better job of establishing this conflict. How I saw it was I saw it as the first act of the confrontation between Sander and, and Gregor. And then the mm-hmm. third and the second act and the third act will get in season eight of the show, uh, where we'll actually see them come out and, and brawl and hopefully Sander will kill. Gregor in that pivotal scene. I mean, I thought it was interesting they had it as actual little monologue, or yeah, I mean, it was a monologue because it wasn't really dialogue, as opposed to just like a fraught glance, Sandor glaring. What was Sandor yeah. doing? <laughs> it it didn't make sense. It was a very weird. He was like taunting him, and then like threatening. Was he threatening to kill him? I don't even know what yeah. was happening. I'm coming for you, brother. It felt like fan service. It did. Mm-hmm. It did. It felt like they shoehorned Clegane Bull in there, and it didn't fit, and it didn't make yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. I think it would have worked better if they would have just be glaring to each other, especially yeah. because of how powerful Gregor's misshapen and strange mm-hmm. eyes are now through yeah. his mask. Although I did like the "you're even uglier." than I looked before. <laughs> that was nice. I can see why they wrote it, why they gave him dialogue for that just because of that line. I was wondering if what triggered Sandor to just get up in his face is that Gregor looked like a proper knight and a member of the Kingsguard and hmm. that's always been something that's rubbed Sandor the wrong way and he's like, oh, he gets like all this great armor, he gets to be like, wear the white cloak. <laughs> it's true. Screw that guy, I'm getting in his face. Sandor did used to be on the Kingsguard, so. But he was never really a knight. Gregor's like surpassed him again. He's looking up and he's like, oh, hey, I, was on the king's guard what the hell can i have anything that gregor doesn't have god damn it may have worked better if it was coming off of like when euron got up and started moving toward Tyrion, and like then uh sandor got up to block him for Tyrion, and then gregor got up and then they Mm. had like a little little tiff in there where they had a a reason for them to get that close to each other rather than this thing Mm. but it, this felt like, this is teacher me talking, it's like you've got this control in the classroom and then now you've got these two kids that are talking to each other out of turn and it's like, shut up, like I'm trying to talk. And then they go back to what they're doing and then like this other kid gets up and starts going on. It's like just, you know, what would really happen would be, yeah, it would be it would escalate, like control of the situation would, would deteriorate and then yeah, right, someone right. would have to be like, all right, all right, this is why we're here, shut up, right? <laughs> But it, instead, it was just all of these weird diversions, like a play yeah. or something. Like, it's like, okay, now it's your time to. <laughs> <laughs> it was a kind of, like, it was like a stage play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could do a whole, like, waiting for Godot, but it's waiting for Danny. Um, no, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> no, so okay. speaking of Danny, Danny arrives <laughs> on Dragonback. I loved her arrival, by the way. The dust shooting up. I'm surprised they didn't have a shot there where they're like getting blown over by the dragon's wings as it came down to land. They're like, oh my god, they hurricane. Didn't, they didn't have enough days in the dragon pit to film that. That was too complex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was afraid, I don't know, maybe I'm just like afraid. I, I was surprised they didn't have another scorpion there to threaten her. Hmm. Yeah. Could Like, what if Cersei had walked out with one in tow behind her? Like Kyron was bringing his porta scorpion or something. Mm. Porta scorp, <laughs> as they call it. Uh-huh. The porta scorp nine thousand. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we kind of mentioned it already, but Euron does just completely interrupt, with, which I think is a good character moment for Euron uh, because he's an ass. Yeah. Goes right after Theon, and uh, Tyrion said this would happen during their planning meeting. He's like, by the way, Cersei's going to do some provocative. Turns out, just Euron did it for her. Yeah, that's true. Use her attack dog. Do you think it was planned on Cersei's part? Do you think that Cersei said, "Hey, yeah, you're on." When when the moment comes, we're gonna the wrench you're gonna throw into this whole mix is you're going to uh, confront your nephew, who, who we expect to be at the meeting itself. Is that something that you think is was pre planned, or was it Euron being was it a Euron moment in the episode? 
I think it was in both instances, Cersei said, you have to get really ridiculous at some point about something stupid, and then you have to find something to get offended at and leave, and he picked these two things. That could Theon be. was there. It was an easy target. Yeah. yeah, he was playing pen. She was playing teller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly some sort of season eight, at least a scene, if not a plot line, this Euron Theon thing. So it seems like they're really trying to ramp that up, that confrontation between the two of them. It's interesting coming off this because George just revealed, I think a while ago, that he created Ramsay as a foil for Theon. Yes. I always thought that they were setting it up in the show just when I was a show watcher because Theon says something about, I will kill that horn blowing. Aegon. If yeah. it's the last thing I do, I swear it. And then it's uh, John and Sansa who end up taking Ramsay down. So. <laughs> in the books, it wasn't a horn. It was um, the Boltons arrived and uh, Ramsay killed uh, Cassell. Roderick. Yeah. yeah. And then the Boltons then set upon the, the Northmen and uh, killed them all, most of them. And Theon opened the gates to them. And then, uh, you know, I never, I'd never understood that scene in the books when I read it the first time. Mm-hmm. Completely baffled me. I had Same. to go yeah. look it up. I thought it was also that Theon and John were supposed to uh, be foils against one another. They are, yes. It's a lot of foils. He did say that. Tyrion and John. then, once Euron is done upstaging them, they introduce their special guest of the evening, a corpse in a box. Corpse in a box. (laughs) Aegon in the box. Step one. Put your white in the box. (laughs) (laughs) They grab the wrong box and it's actually Varys' warlock. (laughs) After all this time. Oh my gosh. That was the first thing I thought of. I thought it would be really funny if, like, the white was dead and nothing came out. I was so scared that was going to happen. They they did that. They played that up. It's like nothing moved until he kicked it over. For sure. uh, So the... (sighs) So there's a couple things about this scene that kind of just made me roll my eyes when I was watching it. Okay. The first thing was the the length of the chain. Like, did they measure the length of the chain between where they were going to empty the box and where Cersei was going to be sitting? Because that white came (laughs) about five inches from Cersei's face, right? Sandor had the chain in his hands. I think it was just like he had it like a dog. So he just pulled it at the last second? Yep. Mm, Theatrics. I guess that's theatrics, but it, it... it was kind of silly um, at the same time. <laughs> and then the, the other thing, too, is I guess when I when I was thinking about how this would go down, my thought was that Cersei would be like, this is some sort of ruse, right? This is something that she would immediately go to to Kyburn and Kyburn creating Gregor and be like, oh, they've created something like this to uh-huh. fool mm. me into some sort of an alliance or truce. And then they're going to stab me in the back as soon as my troops have withdrawn from the front lines like that. I thought that was the, the motif they were going for. But Cersei was an instant believer. And that made me roll my eyes mm-hmm. a, a lot because it didn't seem like a Cersei moment, even a Cersei moment from the show. I don't know what you guys thought about that. I kind of felt like it needed to have a scene where Cersei went to a Kyburn and asked his opinion on it mm-hmm. because he is the expert anywhere in the world that is not in the North on this sort of thing. And they didn't really have that scene. I, I felt like it could have used it and it would have been nice because we haven't seen that much of Kyburn in like his own scenes except for the Scorpion one. Well, maybe we didn't need that scene because we saw Kyburn's reaction. Kyburn's reaction was awe. Yeah, and that's true. And he goes up to him and he's like, whoa, this is sick. And he's just so... <laughs> <laughs> I want one of these. Cersei. Yeah. It, it would have been a moment where like if Kyburn said like, I don't understand this. And it's like he's the foremost expert on it. Then maybe there actually is a full army of these people up to the north because... Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's like there isn't any human being who could create just one of these objects to come down here to show and tell. I mean, it kind of comes back to the plot to capture a white and bring it to Cersei as proof is just, it's not the strongest thing anyway. So having Cersei buy into it is kind of like, oh, oh, okay, all right, sure. Wait, I just realized something. With the exception of, like, Drogo, we have all three different kinds of undead that we've seen in the series in the dragon pit in that moment. Ooh. Whoa, that's yeah. It. That's, that's a good call. That's, that's, nice. that's, a, that's a nice catch. That's a hashtag nice catch. Yes. Actually. Hashtag. Yeah. Maybe it would have worked later when it plays into it that Cersei really didn't believe that there was an yeah. entire army of the dead. I mean, it would work if she did or she didn't, but it would also come off as more pragmatic on Cersei's part if she didn't believe that it was a full army, that they couldn't deal with it. Yeah, that's the other thing is since at the end of the episode, we learned that she's been, you know, plotting in secret and everything she says has been a lie. Like, it kind of raises into question anything she does. That's true. During the episode, because yeah. it could just be her manipulating people, you know, like you never know. I, I really mm-hmm. felt like her responses throughout the episode were inconsistent. So when the white is running at her, she looks terrified. Right. And it's like that's like a, an awakening for her. But then later on, she just blows it off. As it being no big deal, mm-hmm. uh, does she really believe that it's a threat or not? Right. I thought the implication was that she rationalized it later, like, oh, I have Gregor. I already knew this yeah. was real. That was a scary it ran at me. Right. Well, it even works into her, her plan if she lets these people kill off a lot of the northerners, and she also feels like she can deal with it when it gets down to her more. Cersei's going for broke. If she doesn't win, nobody gets to win. Nobody walks away from her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's a really good post by a user 8686 saying Cersei is absolutely right, in which the user says near the end of the most recent episode, she said something like, if dragons, Dothraki, unsullied wildlings, and northern armies can't beat the dead, what good is the remnant of our army going to do? If the dead win, they march south and kill us. If the living win, they march south and kill us. So there's no, she doesn't have, she's not incentivized whatsoever to do anything but betray Danny and her followers in this moment. All that subtle manipulation that she's doing in the dragon pit scene itself is working towards that motivation that she doesn't really have any reason to, to help these people out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I disagree with that OP, though, I that that's assuming that they don't change their mind. And if Cersei and Jaime send the full might of their army up to help fight the White Walkers then what's to say that they can't make a bargain after it's all over? Right, sure. You would kind of want something in writing before they head up there that there's not going to come down and (laughs) slaughter everyone after the war is over because there is nothing in there. The user goes on to say, uh, Daenerys didn't even pretend to offer her anything like, quote, after the war, you can be war in the West and rule casterly rock. Yeah. Daenerys and Jon are basically like, Help us out and we'll wait a while and kill you later on, which is absolutely true. Yeah. They didn't ask for anything other than sitting on the throne. If they had said, will you give us Casterly Rock if we let you come back? You know, I mean, like they're, they're, they were missing yeah. any of the real bargaining, any of the real politics in it. It was just, hey, there are these dead things. Are you coming or not? Yes, no. So is, is, uh, so is this symptomatic of these kind of rush to the finish type things we were talking about at the beginning that they're not going to focus on all the political grandstanding that would normally accompany these scenes from earlier earlier seasons and then get straight to the point? Mm. Yes, and I think this is good evidence that Cersei is not Tywin. <laughs> 
Like, Tywin would have had a plan by now. Tywin would have been like, let me cut my losses and, like, reserve some of this power that I have. I mean, Cersei and Jaime being able to go back to Casterly Rock and have their baby and continue that legacy is what they're talking about wanting. I mean, it's a difference between having their ancestral castle and having the throne. But as Cersei says, there's a good chance that if they beat the White Walkers, Danny and John are just going to turn around and try to attack her again with dragons. And if they lose, then the White Walkers are coming down. I mean, like, I I disagree fundamentally that, like, that the best case scenario is to do nothing. Because the best case scenario is to win the war against the White Walkers and then try to use that favor to get something that you want. And then everyone, War of Nine, Penny Kings it and becomes the mm-hmm. FFs. <laughs> Aww. Well, Cersei can use the White Walkers, then it works to her advantage. But we'll get, we'll get into more of that yeah. later. Yeah, we can get into the weeds of that. But obviously, this does have an effect on one of the characters, the white popping out. Uh, Euron <laughs> immediately just gets the hell out of Dodge, which of course <laughs> turns out to be a ruse, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I kind of liked it as not a ruse, though. I mean, I... Yeah. Yeah, I thought it made perfect sense that he would actually be cowardly after all its grandstanding. I don't know. Book Euron would have also been hard. Uh, we can stop <laughs> saying it like that. <laughs> Book Euron would have also been... Book Euron would have been super excited about this. He would have been totally Aegon. Yeah. It feels kind of contradictory in the moment because he's like, can they walk on water? And they're like, no. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go back home. <laughs> it's like, well, you, then you didn't need to go back home if they can't walk on water. If they can't swim. They can't swim. They can't walk on water. Yeah. They can't. I mean, they, they, they can't walk on water. That's, that's true, too. That's true. <laughs> but... That's true. They are not a bunch of Jesuses walking across. Unless... It's frozen. <gasps> in the books, in the books, we, we think one of the prevailing theories is that Euron is either explicitly or is unknowingly in league with the others, right? That's that's a major theory that's out mm-hmm. there. You have the Eldritch yeah. Apocalypse by Poor Quentin, which expounds on this a great deal. When he rolled out like that, my first initial reaction was, all right, well, now he's going to take the Iron Fleet and sail immediately north and try and make some sort of alliance with the Night King and and the White Walkers because that would line up pretty well with how the books seem to be pointing Euron's character and the future of his story. But uh, the the ruse part just left me flat. Really flat. It didn't have any impact at all besides, oh, Cersei's betraying the the people, which we already know, and he's bringing a 20,000 man army over to Westeros, which Okay, great, but th- there's nothing beyond that. There's there's no purpose to Huron besides being almost a literal ship vehicle to bring armies across the sea or to confront navies that are fighting on behalf of Daenerys. He seems like enhanced Kingsguard. Right. Yeah. He's definitely not worse than Ramsay. He's not. No, he's really not. No, no. he's just I'm- kind of he's kind of a jerk. Kind of. <laughs> he's basically taking Orion Waters role from the books. Oh, yeah. Oh, right? Oh, like, like Cersei's that. got her oh. eye on him, kind of, oh. and uh, oh. <laughs> oh. You know, oh. He's, he's out there being oh. he's being this daring pirate king. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It does work if Rain Waters, in the books, Rain Waters is a character who builds Cersei's fleet back up, but then betrays her and like takes yes. off with all of the new warships that she's built. All those drummonds. And is speculated as being a pirate of the waters and might yes. end up helping ferry the Golden Company to Westeros because they're scattered because of storms. Yeah, it, it could it could work like that a bit. 
I mean, the funny thing about bringing the Golden Company is in this late is like, you know, Cersei's like, oh, they have, you know, 20,000 soldiers and cavalry and elephants. And it's like, yeah, okay, but dragons. I mean, what do, what are you bringing to bear against the dragons? Like, how is this changing the fight except just adding more bodies to the pile? Elephants have those trunks. They can grab dragons. We'll talk about the Golden Company later. Cannot wait. I'm sure Jeff has some uh, hot, Cannot wait. Oh, hot yes. takes. Hot takes. Cannot wait. Hot pancakes. Trucking right along then. Uh, Cersei obviously has this massive change of heart after seeing the white. She says, you know, of course we'll have a truce as long as John steps out of the way as well. <laughs> John. Um, John. What a guy. I love I love Danny. Uh, I really appreciate you, you know, like <laughs> pledging your loyalty to me. But there's this tweet from user Leia's Organa, and first it starts out with this image of Cersei, and the caption says, "My only condition is that we give the North the independence it's always wanted." And then John goes, "That sounds like such a great deal for the people and family that I fought so hard to protect and give sovereignty." But I'm trying pretty hard to go on my aunt, so I'll have to pass. <laughs> to believe that. <laughs> yeah, that's- but and he does. It literally ends up with him agoning his aunt mm. in the end, because that's when the yeah. reveal comes. This was a scene that was like, yes, yeah, seasons coming where everyone turns and says, "John, you're an." idiot <laughs> it's like we've been waiting for this like everyone's like oh he's lord commander he's king of the north yeah. we can't really insult him too much everyone just turned around and went like what the hell was that man yeah i totally Absolutely. disagree but the, here's the thing i totally disagree with that i think that john was smart here because john's thinking beyond just the immediate threat of the white walkers right so in this scene john's an, an optimist here he's thinking beyond the war that they're all going to be hopefully fighting side by side together and he's thinking to what's going to happen after the war does humanity go back to the stage of these squabbling, violent War of the Five Kings type settings where everyone ends up dying anyways? Or do they have some sort of order and some sort of trust and this lack of cynicism that has permeated Westeros? And I think that's really hmm. good on John's part. And I think it's you can call him an idiot, but and maybe he is an idiot. <laughs> but the and what ends up happening in the end game is that you have people that actually trust each other when they come to the negotiation table after the war is over. That's true. If there is an end game. If there is an end game. If they can't defeat the White Walkers, then none of it matters anyway. But they have to go with the assumption that they are going to win the war, right? They have to have some hope that there's there's an end game for them where they're they come out of this whole thing victorious. Right, but, but the whole point was to get Cersei's support so that they could. I thought the in-universe rationale with John's little speech about words not meaning anything and vows not meaning anything, I thought it made complete sense. It wasn't, I didn't read it as negatively or as John being a dumbass. Mm-hmm. What's well, a character moment for John too, right? What about the part where John breaks his oaths to the Night's Watch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which one? Well, he was released from his oath. Yeah, he died. Also, he could have conveniently released himself by from this oath because Cersei clearly says, because you're Ned Stark's son and I know that I can trust you on this, but he's not Ned Stark's son. Boom. I feel like if they had done it the opposite way, if, if they did have John lie to Cersei and then just say to Danny and Tyrion afterwards, you know, I had my fingers crossed. It's totally fine. <laughs> that destroys his character or it's a really it's or it's a really huge chink out of john's character yes and then you have to wonder wouldn't danny and Tyrion be questioning whether or not they can trust what john is saying exactly yeah exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some people have said that this feeds into the Varys betrayal moment 
I don't have a citation for this, but <laughs> that Varys will end up joining with John because of this moment, because John is saying, like, if I don't have my word, then what else in the world matters to me making this stand? Mm. And that fits very well into everything that Varys has been saying about, like, the people thing. Like, you need people like me to be the schemers, but the king needs to be somebody who is, or the queen needs to be somebody who is upheld to a higher moral standard for the people. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Varys supporting John is really in character, though, for Book Varys supporting a character named Aegon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 uh. Who isn't who he says he is? I just want to point out that this conversation started with me calling John an idiot and Jeff saying, no, John's really smart. <laughs> the irony That's of that That's crazy, happening. actually. I can't believe we got that on, on tape. Uh, no. Because um, we actually, fun fact, we do record Quill and Tankers on tape. <laughs> right. Um, and then splice yeah. them together. Scotch tape. It's <laughs> We're very hipster. It's very low quality. Uh, no, actually, just the scotch. <laughs> to me, the dumbass in the moment is Danny. She could have just ordered Dijon to do this. Dijon? 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 French? It's not delivery. Dijon? Val Dijon? Dijon? She could have just said, like, I'm your queen. Tell Cersei that you won't do it. Pull him aside and say it. She can give that order. No, yeah, she could. And I was just watching. I'm like, there's no reason for this to exist if she just thinks of this in the moment. But I guess it goes into her mind like she doesn't want to give John, I guess, an order like this because she's like oh I, I like you john <laughs> well yeah i mean so as cersei is leaving brienne literally grabs jamie's arm which is the most physical contact they've had in quite a while steamy mm, just like those bathhouses at heron hall yeah and tries desperately to persuade him to join danny's cause how does that play into brienne's obsession with oaths and Jamie's obsession with oaths and trying to uphold all of them because he's obviously sworn to Cersei and yet there's this thing that he should be doing that's the right thing to do. I mean, he's been in this kind of situation before and yet he still seems perplexed. Yeah, never learns. It's interesting. It's weird having Brienne say bugger loyalty. So much has been made of her character being loyal to Renly and then loyal to Catelyn and and I understand what they're going for there, I guess, in that she's just really trying so hard to get Jamie off the Cersei train. The Cersei loot train? What is Jamie saying? Why is Jamie saying that he's loyal to Cersei? Is he saying he's loyal to Cersei because she's his queen slash family or because he loves her? Because if it's the two former ones, I would say bugger loyalty is in line with Brienne's character because like she should have pledged the right thing would have been for her to pledge to stannis or even to the iron throne but instead she chooses renly we got that on take two so we should pledge to stannis right <laughs> no we should pledge to stannis <laughs> just want to make sure we got that on take <laughs> no but you're, you're right yeah it's her choosing renly right at the beginning so I, yeah i see what you're saying how that's important it's not a choice for her because her father supports Renly. So as, as the Lord yes. goes, so, so do you go as, as the subject. So, yes. It, or, or I guess Selwyn Tarth's loyalty is somewhat ambiguous. I don't think it's ever confirmed that he supports Renly, but the implication is that he supports yeah. Renly because Brienne in that is. Area. But that's not why Brienne supported Renly. It's because the dance when Renly uh, it was yeah. nice and wasn't a that's jerk. That's what I mean. Made her feel like she was just a normal lady at the ball. She chose Renly because she felt that Renly, even though he didn't have the better claim, <laughs> being the firstborn, she felt that Renly would be the better king because of 
the experiences that she had mm-hmm. with him and because of her love for mm-hmm. him. And she's imploring Jamie to make that same choice of do the better thing for the realm. Yeah. I think that the show makes it sound like she's saying a generality, screw loyalty, but really she's saying specifically, Jamie, screw your loyalty. Mm. It's And she's. I think she's saying it as not screw loyalty in general, just do whatever you want. It's forget your oaths to individual people. It's about a higher cause, right? That's the That's the- yeah. Subtext that she's trying to communicate is forget loyalty to a banner. This is about humanity. And that's what Jamie picks up on later. Yeah, that's exactly Jamie's point when he's in the broth or brothel in the bath at and he's like the people yes, broth. this is what i did i saved all these people and brianne is appealing to jamie's sense of morality and like caring for like what's best for everybody at yeah. this moment mm-hmm. and she knows mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. in him she just has to bring that out and like get him to realize that there's good in him still i know it yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, <laughs> mm. somewhere deep down going back to the maggie the frog prophecy about the younger more beautiful one taking all that cersei holds dear mm-hmm. cersei twice eye checks brienne and gives her the stink eye for showing up there she doesn't really do that to anybody else Ooh. like as obviously as she does to brienne yeah and then at the end of the episode it is Brienne's influence that makes Jamie leave. One of the things that Cersei holds dear, Valonqar on its way. Get hype. Cersei definitely demonstrated her jealousy towards Brienne at the purple wedding. So Yeah, true, true. Yeah, this is a well-established thing that she is very upset that Brienne and Jamie have anything going on. Yeah. Brienne the beauty. Mm. Yeah, showing that even though uh, Cersei professes to only really care about like herself and the Iron Throne and her legging and stuff like that, it really bothers her that Brienne is there and the relationship she has with Jamie. Mm-hmm. I do like mm-hmm. how that's portrayed more subtly than say yes. the, the John mm-hmm. Danny Janaris dynamic, which is laid on so heavily. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, you could even compare it to the the Mountain and the Hound, who they walk up to each other and the Hound yeah, yells at his brother. But instead, Cersei <laughs> does the whole thing with just looks at Brienne. She's like, "What are you doing here?" Right. You you get that. You get that. Maybe you know. Maybe that's just because Rory McCann is not the actor Lena Headey is. But that's. That's a you take that back. controversial sure. statement. Um, or maybe Jamie leaves because he's going north to go see the White Walkers and meets the younger, more beautiful Night Queen. Perfect. I like where this is going. I do not. <laughs> Val? Do you think he finds Whoa. her under Winterfell? Underwear? Is it Lyanna Stark? And once again, Cersei gets turned down for Lyanna Stark? <laughs> exactly correct. Lyanna Stark is the stone dragon that comes to life. Lyanna Stark's statue oh, like comes it, to in life. In Mulan. Whoa. What Whoa. if there's a prophecy where a knight from the south rides up to meet a martial-like knightly woman of the north, and Rhaegar thought that that was him and Lyanna, but really it's supposed to be Jamie riding north with Brienne. That's what I'm saying. She's the knight queen, like K-N-I-G-H-T. Whoa. Oh, oh there it is. Perfect. Oh and and what is it? Star, what, what, what is it on Tarth? Even star. Oh, the uh, Sapphire Isle. The even star. Simeon's star eyes. And then also from Sir Dunk the Lunk, she has the shooting star, and stars are like associated with night. 
time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Night time. So this has oh been uh, Tinfoil Corner brought to you by Maester Monthly. <laughs> yeah, we need a little jingle for it. Can someone, can we get Sam to whip up a- It's just crinkling tinfoil and people <laughs> screaming. <laughs> that's, that's my house all the time. Also home of the mountain as the arrowhead in the sky. Okay. Perfect. I'm just going to keep plugging that every time. <laughs> Until it comes true, we're going to keep saying it's going to happen. It's a lot of mass, man. Um, so Tyrion goes up to the keep to see Cersei in Percy. In person. <laughs> and uh, No, the first one was right. Going John's hotly debated proclamation, Tyrion goes off to see Cersei because he is... The only one who can speak to her one-on-one, sibling-o, a-sibling-o. And we get here just an incredible scene between Peter Dinklage and Lena Headey. And we I don't think we've had a scene with just the two of them since season, mid-season four? Yeah, nope. I'm looking at the document here, and it was actually in season three, the finale, Misa. It's been a long time. It's been quite a while. So, But it's so great to get them back together, because they were such a strong part of like season two early on when the show was in its infancy, back when it only had about four million uh, viewers per episode, as opposed to the... 12 million we've got now. Someone want to say something positive because <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> oh. As always, the acting was fantastic. So it's true. Peter Dinklage and Lena Headey are perhaps two of the best actors on the show. Apologies to Alfie Allen. But they, they really did a fantastic job communicating emotion in this scene and also giving us a good primer on why they both hate each other which is important to, to be reminded of because we haven't seen that dynamic since really since season two when they were both locked in a uneasy alliance to defeat Stannis. I didn't like the scene because the characters didn't act the way that they've been set up to act. You can make the point that Book Cersei and Book Tyrion would never have this type of conversation, but even as in the established universe of the show, I, I don't know why Cersei didn't just straight up kill Tyrion when she had the chance. And I don't know why Tyrion went to Cersei thinking that this would be the key to unlock an alliance. And I see a lot of posts, and I'm sure we'll get to them in a moment, saying that, you know, Tyrion was was double dealing in order to secure Cersei's implicit support so that Danny could abandon the war in the South and focus on the North. But I don't I don't know. I, I felt confused by the scene. I was moved by the acting, but I felt confused by the writing of the scene. And I was confused about the motivations of the character. And it just didn't like the scene. It was one of my least favorite scenes of this episode. I thought this was one of the best scenes of the entire season. And I can understand where you're coming from, Jeff. But we've established by now the Tyrion of the show is St. Tyrion the Gift. He's not <laughs> vengeful book Tyrion. And Lena's Cersei is so fundamentally different from the book version that I don't really know exactly what she feels and thinks, especially there are haphazard moments where she goes back and forth between feeling different things. But I can understand how Tyrion brings up Marcella in here. Ah. That even with Jamie, nobody's really loved Marcella as much as Tyrion and Cersei did, and they can bond over that sort of thing. And Cersei, as much as she may have liked seeing Tyrion fail, with all the loss that they've had in their family, I can see why she would be unwilling to pull the trigger. I was just going to say, I felt like it was really powerful the way that Tyrion pushed Cersei to the edge and was like, okay, well then just go ahead and kill me. 
I felt like he didn't know what she was going to do. He was calling her bluff, but he wasn't sure that it was a bluff. Mm, And that after that point, he was safe and they were free to open up to each other because he had proven right then and there that she wasn't going to kill him. I've seen this scene in Rush Hour also uh, at the end of Rush Hour where the little girl's like, push the button, push the button, push the goddamn button. And and they don't. (laughs) And that's the inspiration for this scene. I I read this a little differently. I didn't think it was that Cersei wasn't willing to kill her brother. It's that Danny was right outside with Drogon and Rhaegal. That there's an implicit threat that if uh, Tyrion doesn't come out of there, the Red Keep is getting hmm. burned to the ground. I, Interesting. But I didn't see in Cersei, in Lena Headey's performance, I didn't see fear. I saw anguish. like Anguish that she wants to kill him but can't. No, like this is my family and that she was talking about how important family was. And so it would have been pointless for her to kill Tyrion after having gone on about how important family was. Hmm. So I certainly see the anguish aspect in Cersei's performance. And I also read that in the books, too, in that she has this kill Tyrion at all costs type mission going forward in Feast for Crows when she assumes the Queen Regency role. Where I was basing this kind of contrast in character conflict that doesn't make sense to me is if you remember in season four, after during um, Oberyn and the Mountains fight, you get a shot of Cersei looking absolutely gleeful when Oberyn Martell loses mm-hmm. That fight. And that's after Joffrey has died. And since that time, Marcella has also died. And Marcella died because of something that Tyrion did, a political move that Tyrion made back in season yep. two, where he sent yep. Marcella mm-hmm. down to Dorne to ensure that the Dornish weren't going to side with Renly or Stannis against the against the Lannisters. So I, I felt that anguish and that desire to kill Tyrion was much more amplified. And there was more of a reason that Cersei would want to kill Tyrion. And holding back felt at odds with the established characters of Cersei already. Now, Cho Tyrion is, is kind of saying Tyrion. But in the books, you have Tyrion saying and thinking things like, I'm going to side with Daenerys Targaryen because I want to kill my brother and rape my sister. It, it does clash in, in, in conflict with each other. And I have a hard time at points separating the two canons. And I have a hard time also when those two canons yeah. are so different from each other mm-hmm. that the characters would be unrecognizable to each other mm-hmm. had they, if they met in, real, in, in life. You definitely can't imagine book Tyrion and book Cersei at this point sitting down in a room and both of them leaving. You know what I mean? Right. One of them would die in that room. Right. One way or another. Yeah. And there are very different characters in the show and it, I think it's consistent there. But it, yeah. it really stuck out to me, I guess, this episode, the, the way the differences have kind of snowballed to the point where you can have. Tyrion and Cersei sit down in a room together and they both live at the end and not just live, but apparently come out with a truce together. But I felt like Cersei was in a different place during this scene. I felt like she was a lot more vulnerable, that she was almost childlike. Two episodes ago, we were talking about the rant that Arya had at Sansa about, you know, how can you be in our parents' bedroom? How can you be taking over Winterfell when our parents are dead and you were there and like on the stage with them while they killed our father. And here Cersei kind of gives Tyrion the same speech. Mm. But it's, mm. you know, of course, Tyrion was responsible for killing their father. <laughs> right. It, I felt like it was less anger and more hurt, right? It was like, you took my father away from me. And I felt like it was the same sort of childlike ranting at her sibling about this that we saw two episodes ago. I was watching the behind the episode about that scene 
it's really interesting to hear everyone's take on it because D&D had an entirely different view. They say that Cersei is playing Tyrion. This was Cersei at peak scheming. She wanted Tyrion to think that they were sharing this moment. He had discovered that she was pregnant accidentally, but explicitly say, <laughs> no, she was double faking him out. Like leading him on. She grabbed yeah. her stomach and was like, and like looked off wistfully. It's like, oh, yeah. She wanted him to see. So this is the 4D yeah. chess we've been yeah. waiting for the whole season. <laughs> it's finally here. It also seems to be like D&D, they were initially planning just to get to the Red Wedding. So they really loved the first three books. They don't know so much about four and five, but it feels like their interpretation of Cersei is heavily colored based upon how they interpret her in the first three books. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is interesting considering she doesn't have point of view chapters she in the first does, three books. She does dumb things in the first three books too. Yeah. I do feel like we kind of need to just completely throw book Cersei out the window when looking at the show because those characters are fundamentally so different. And so to say that I don't love Cersei's chapters, like I really love her chapters in the book. I know some people here might disagree. Yeah. Uh, Whoa. uh, (laughs) No, I really enjoy them. I don't like her, but her chapters are fun to read. You don't, I don't like her. But I don't like how stupid she is in, in, in A Feast for Crows. Like every, but every decision she makes is the wrong one. She can't make a right decision. The only time she makes a right decision is when Jamie gives her the right answer on sending Mace Terrell away from King's Landing. That's it. That's the only right decision she makes in the entire book. I got to wonder if George's writing Cersei's chapters was sort of his test run. He, he's always talked about writing... An I Claudius style book about Aegon hmm. the Unworthy, yes. about Aegon the Fourth, yes. who yeah. is just a dick to everybody and keeps making terrible decisions and legitimizes all his bastards, does terrible, stupid things all the time. And you got to wonder if the Cersei chapters are kind of like a dry run for that almost, like writing this ruler who is just petty and mean and dumb and, you know, just cruel, all, all sorts of terrible things wrapped up into one ball of just nastiness. And yet she's not the worst person you could imagine <laughs> yeah. in the books. Yeah. I mean like yeah. yeah, right. She has many redeeming qualities even though she is an awful person. At least one. At least one. She's not the worst. Her cheekbones, right? He yeah. wrote yeah. most of those 15 years ago. So <sighs> he said he said at Balticon last May that he had a Cersei chapter on his desk. That's right. Mm. So he wrote one last May. Whoopee. <laughs> oh George ended God. up writing better Cersei chapters in A Dance with Dragons when Cersei was stripped of her power and became a much more sympathetic character. But in A Feast for Crows, the sympathy is built from this position that she's haunted by this prophecy, which I know Eliana loves. Uh, so much. And that's what drives the sympathetic aspect, which kind of falls flat when you reread the books a few times, but we can move on. So Tyrion points out that she's pregnant and then it cuts. What happens after that? This has kind of been floating around, so I don't have a citation for it, but people are theorizing Tyrion may have promised Cersei's child to be the heir to the Iron Throne after Daenerys. Well, one person who pointed it out, uh, who has quite a lot of karma for it, so oh. they must be right, is um, Hungry Velociraptor, in all caps. Good so, name. So that's, I, I don't, again, right. I don't know where it originated, like you said, Aaron. That's one person who who said in their comment, 
in the in-depth post-episode discussion thread that they think Tyrion promised Cersei's child to be the next heir to the throne. I wonder if it's not the heir, but promised to marry it, Cersei's child to whatever kid J- Danny has, like r- marry into the royal family. That would be more in line with what Tyrion has done in the past with the kind of deal making he does. Well, Tyrion doesn't believe that she's going to have a child. Uh, that John John brought up a very good point this episode. Why does Danny <laughs> believe Miri Mazdor? Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think Tyrion believes that either. He I think he questioned her about it, and she's like, uh, Miri Mazdor. He's like, okay, I guess that's a thing. I mean, that's that's not like proof or anything. Right, it's not like I, she has a medical diagnosis or anything. I mean, yeah, I mean, like a macer hasn't said this. It's a witch diagnosis. Well, you do have Dario in there, and it's never implied that they use protection, so... Yeah. And she's never gotten pregnant. We don't know that. Dario could be shooting blanks. That's not proof. <laughs> He could be infertile. That's totally a thing. Dario totally uses lambskin condoms. End of story. So there's the theory that Tyrion gave Cersei something. There's also a couple users who have theorized that Tyrion is now actively working for Cersei to betray Danny. So user n.ny points out that um, there's a lot of evidence for this from the episode. There's foreshadowing with Tyrion's dialogue with Bronn about the temptation to switch sides and what it takes to become loyal to the other person's queen. During the negotiation, Cersei almost explicitly states that she needs a spy in Daenerys' inner circle before she could agree to a temporary truce. Tyrion sets up a private meeting under false pretenses. He says that he wants to meet with Cersei alone, and it seems very selfless, but that if he picked up on the fact that Cersei was willing to conspire with him, that it would be good for him and not good for Danny. So he was going in there for his own sake, not despite his da- the danger. Uh, Cersei's words after the meeting, calling Jamie the dumbest Lannister. <laughs> well, um, that's not wrong. And then Tyrion's expression at the end on the boat, um, maybe con- contemplating his decision to, to switch sides and become a spy. I cannot believe Tyrion would ever work no. with Cersei. No, I don't think so. I can believe a lot of things, like things that have happened in this season, but Tyrion would never trust Cersei like that. I don't I don't even know what she could promise him that he would actually take that offer. I could see, though, them going the darker Tyrion route next season with the way that she switches up on their deal that they made. So what you're saying is, is that the show is finally going to catch up to where they are in the books with Jaime rejecting Cersei and Tyrion wanting to kill her. This doesn't happen so much in the show with Tyrion, but it definitely happens with Jamie, where... It hasn't committed. They haven't really wanted to commit on this arc where he's pulled away from Cersei, and they'll push and pull him back and forth within her sphere of influence. And maybe that's something that George is struggling with with the Winds of Winter, because he is now committed. Maybe he's having trouble writing the Jamie who has rejected Cersei. And that's yeah. why we don't have the Winds of Winter. Oh. Oh, boy. Oh. Anyway, moving on, unlike Cersei and the boar in the first season. Cersei returns and agrees to join the hunt, right? He agrees to the truce. Yeah, she's genuine about yeah. that. Quote unquote genuine. Is she? Because then that brings up Jamie and Cersei's conversation next. No. Well, there are also theories on the sub, like from Faceless Greenseer, about the fact that maybe Tyrion told Cersei to lie just to get them to leave. Whew. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's got a lot of levels to it. It does. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I, I, 
as always with some of these more elaborate theory theories of four dimensional <laughs> strategizing and conspiring going on, I, I feel like the show is the show writers are not thinking to that level. They're thinking of how do I get to the end of the season and into the end game. So when I'm trying to figure out a plot on Game of Thrones, oh, I like oh. to play a little game. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I always assume the worst of the writers. <laughs> always? Oh my, my god. god. The most reductive, Amazing. simplest um, possible solution. No, but I mean, yeah, like it's hard to put the necessary faith in the writing when we've seen sort of the writing scraping the bottom of the barrel and all that. I mean, it's not as bad as I think some people make it out to be. It's not like, you know, a, a trash show or something. It's not a daytime soap opera or whatever you know it's it's still a pretty good show but at some point you just gotta cut like the complexity and go yeah it's not gonna be that it's not that deep is it cersei and jamie confront each other jamie's the stupidest lannister um (laughs) since orson (laughs) since oh burn burn yeah i mean this seems to be the big betrayal moment for him right in the books it was moon boy for all i know but for this in this it seems to be I can't think of an iconic line. You're the stupidest Lannister, I guess. That'll be the... (laughs) (laughs) The lowest of the Lannisters. Which is ironic, given Tyrion's height. Well, that's a Tywin line earlier on. He might be the lowest of the Lannisters, but he's still a Lannister. Subtle Tywin digs. I have a controversial take on this. That's not controversial. (sighs) Don't present it as that, that because then it will be. Okay, well, all right. I don't know if it's necessarily better or not, but there are parts of it that might portray Jamie as a somewhat better person in some aspects, not all of them. So, like, obviously, Jamie's bad for going along and hypocritical for going along with, like, Cersei's crazy harebrained schemes when he was all like, yeah, I'm super moral (laughs) because, like, I killed Ares, right? Yeah. Yeah, the impetus for Jamie turning against Cersei in the books doesn't exist in the show. In the books, it's that Jamie learns that Cersei has been sleeping with Lancel and one of the Kettle Blacks. I don't know, all their names sound the same to me. And Moonboy. <laughs> for all we know. For all we know. <laughs> and it becomes Jamie becoming disillusioned with Cersei because she's like sleeping with other people, right? It's not because of who Cersei is. So in this aspect, the show makes Jamie become gradually more disillusioned with Cersei being like, uh, wait, what? You suggested that? And then like it continues going forth until finally it's become so egregious that he can no longer take who she has become. It's not this one moment of who of her sleeping with someone else. And I think that this is interesting because then it becomes him choosing the path that Brienne has put forth towards him of Aegon loyalty, or (laughs) Bunger loyalty, um, (laughs) and opting for what is best in the realm, as opposed to the way it's somewhat presented in the books of Brienne versus Cersei of, like, the Madonna and the whore complex, you know? Mm, It's He does, yeah. Jamie, to some extent, like, it's that he feels like... Cersei's no longer his. In the Storm of Swords, we hear Jamie talking about how he was like in Robert's train going all the way up to the north. He's perturbed hearing Robert taking Cersei, but he's not perturbed about Robert taking Cersei because of like him feeling bad that his sister, whom he loves and cares about, is being raped and she doesn't want to have sex with this guy. He feels bad because he gets that he has to hear Robert taking Cersei all the time and it's not him. 
Right, right, it, yeah. That's yeah. the way it seems phrased to so, me. Definitely. So, uh, I, I'm going to disagree partially, but not fully. I, I think that the genesis for Cer- for Jamie's break and with Cersei in the books is the fact that she's sleeping with Lancel, Osmond, Kettle Black, and Moonboy for all, all we know. <laughs> That's what causes him to burn Cersei's letter at River Run at the end of A Feast for Crows. Yes. But in A Dance with Dragons, we get one solitary chapter where Jamie meets up with Brienne and has this choice of whether to try and save Sansa Stark or who he thinks is Sansa Stark. Brienne says it's uh, the, the Hound has Sansa Stark and you need to come alone or to continue on his way back to River Run and then back to King's Landing. And he ends up choosing to follow Brienne and in order to save Sansa Stark. So there's an evolution in Jamie's evolution, right? In the show, I guess when at the end of season six, I was looking for that moment where, you know, you have Jamie coming up and seeing the destruction of Baylor Sept and that being perhaps the the genesis of Jamie's break with Cersei. And then this scene acting as almost that Dance with Dragons thing of Jamie choosing a good reason to to abandon Cersei, uh, a better reason that she's not pursuing the real war, the only war that matters. And I think that's yeah. that's that'd be my only point of disagreement is that there's an evolution in Jamie's break with Cersei that you see in the books and will probably be pursued more in, in wins whenever that comes out. You're saying that there's an evolution in the show or there is not? There is not. There's just a, a sudden break. You have Jamie looking perturbed at the end of season six, but he still serves at Cersei's side and pursues her wars against the Tyrells and fights the Dothraki and the dragon at Bla- at the Blackwater Rush. But as the break comes here. This is the point that he breaks. There's not an evolution in his break. It's just a sudden, not a sudden, but it's, it's a break here. And that's the only break that you're probably going to see. See, I would, I disag- would disagree with that. <sighs> Sorry. <Ooh. laughs> because the this entire season, whether you agree that it's been executed gracefully or not, has been inching towards that. Like you said, the end of season six, he gives seriously kind of like a side eye of like, uh, what are you doing? And then we gradually keep moving towards this point that we've ended at season seven. Like, for example, yes, he goes against the Tyrells, but Lady Olenna questions him, mm-hmm. and then he has to make a response back, right? And then we have the spoils of war, and he sees everyone get decimated, right? And then he has to tell Cersei, no, we can't keep doing this. And it just keeps, he keeps having to defend it, and he's like gradually becoming more and more like, Cersei, these are bad ideas. And finally, this is the last straw of like, yo, this is a bad idea. Jamie needs to say yo more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do think this season, I, I, I think most of their scenes this season have been Jamie slowly getting more and more yeah. peeved with Cersei somehow. It he doesn't make any major it's it's not like he's sowing discord or he goes up to over to Dick on mm-hmm. privately and is like, Hey, you mm-hmm. should really stay home this week. Like Cersei's crazy. <laughs> but it, I think the acting at least for me, I got the sense that they were building towards a clean break, I guess. I don't know. Every scene it seems like they've had this season has them arguing or like ending on a bad note in some way. Hmm. And it's been that the whole way through, even their sex scene. Or in, and then when they uh, they wake up the next morning, Jamie initially doesn't want to have the sex scene. And then the next thing when he wakes up, he's pissed off that she opens the door and lets everybody see. There's nothing they're agreeing on anymore. It's like you can yeah. just see the slow break hmm. apart like Eliana was saying. Interesting. Yeah. They're just kind of holding together out of their previous relationship, but it is quickly unraveling until right here. Well, they've always kind of had this weird sexual dynamic, be- besides the fact that they're brother and sister. True. Um, oh, yeah. That. But yeah. <laughs> I can understand where Jeff's coming from because the way that they've written Jamie to Hem and Haw over the past four seasons now, 
it doesn't feel like there's a point where there's a clean break because they keep going forward and they keep going backwards. And you could expect that over this point, Jamie could just pull back and, and just go along with the rest of what Cersei's doing. But it's this point where they decide to finally make the clean break. And it could have just flipped the other way where he decides to go along with Cersei's plan again because that's the reaction that he's been doing with all these things for the entire past four seasons. Mm. Right. Jamie also didn't seem that spooked by the white, given his reaction was stronger to seeing it than Cersei's was. But because we focus so much on Cersei in that scene, we kind of lose Jamie's reaction in there. And But he's the one who's really turned by it. So, yeah, it, it's not particularly sold entirely well. But maybe we should move on to our next scene. Jamie riding north. I mean, there's this great scene of the snow falling on him as he leaves King's Landing, which Jeff, I think you, Jeff, I, you got your wish. Of war. Love, yeah. love, love this scene. This is my favorite scene in the entire yeah. episode. And mm-hmm. I, I loved the, the snow falling and I loved Jamie's choice to, to ride away. It was more impactful than when the White Ravens flew. Right. Like last season. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminded me of a scene from A Storm of Swords where Jamie has this dream where he's holding a sword that's on fire, which gives rise to the, the theory that Jamie's is aura high. And he's crouching, listening. He's moving in a circle, ready for anything that might come out of the darkness. The water flowed into his boots, ankle deep and bitterly cold. Beware the water, he told himself. There may be creatures living in it, hidden deeps. Some people have, have taken this to mean that Jamie will end up fighting the White Walkers in books and uh, kind of really took me by surprise because I, I always figured that Jamie's storyline would end before he would ever encounter the walkers, both in, in the show and the books. But now this gives rise mm. to yeah. Jamie fighting the White Walkers, which is uh, really cool for, for me. And, and you know, props to those who, who called this, you know, years, years, years ago. But I, I love this scene. I, I love the fact that it was snowing. I love the fact that winter is finally here in King's Landing in a place that's been bathed in this, yeah. you know, yellow light for since season one. This kind of almost Mediterranean type <laughs> place is now turning into northern europe in a sense you know you have the gray clouds you have the snow falling and uh one shot in this scene reminded me of a painting by um tomas jeruzic i'm I'm probably butchering the name but he has this great shot of uh of king's landing at the uh during tywin's sack that he paints and like it was almost transposed in here and it wonderfully done and god i could could talk about this all day but i know we got to move on but it's it's a great scene my favorite the entire episode Speaking of the color palette, I think it's really interesting that when Jamie was a bad guy, he wore white because he was in the King's Guard. Mm-hmm. And when and now that he's sort of a good guy, he's at least turning that direction. Uh, he has this black cloak that he's wearing with his black gloves as he's riding out of town. I just want to call out this really. S- I I love that aspect, and I think that's something that George R. R. Martin has been playing up in the books, like that the White Knights are not so mm-hmm. pure, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially with, like you said, with the Soil Knights. Who, who was that, Aegon? Um, <laughs> and then I just want to call it this one post that I thought it's super short and sweet about Jamie's storyline, saying, did anybody else notice that Jamie's story in Season 7 and A Feast for Crows both end with him abandoning Cersei right before the first snow in King's hmm. Landing? Ah, mm. yes. Nice. Good callback. I like yeah. that. Yeah. As winter comes, you know, it sort of cements his uh, his decisions. Yeah. That's user yeah. Woodblock Solo Twenty Seven. Good observation, Wood. Ah, yeah, way I to go, Woodblock. Wood. Uh, as yeah. as a tribute to them, we're going to do a quick Woodblock Solo here. <laughs> that was 
actually a whole woodblock harmony, guys. Thanks. Well, so with Jamie leaving, let's sort of switch gears a little bit and talk about Dragonstone. We have a couple scenes here. The first one is Danny's small council getting organized, getting set, getting ready. Jorah gives some advice about who should go mm-hmm. where. Maybe Danny should or shouldn't ride a boat. Um, she decides to ride the boat anyway. <laughs> she decides to ride the boat. Is that what we're calling it now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aegon. <laughs> the Aegon. It kind of reminded me of like a high school field trip and like the couple's <laughs> trying to get on the same bus or whatever, you know, like yeah. to go yeah. to the... You go with them. I'll go with this person. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to sit next to them on the bus. Yeah. I'm going to sit next to them. Well, you sit next to them and then I'll switch I knew John you. was lying as soon as he said like, it'll look better for politics if we show up together in White Harbor. I'm like, this is not what you care about, John. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it wouldn't, right? I mean, no, <laughs> it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> it's kind of too bad because if they were going up through Moat Kalen, then John might have run into uh, Howland Reed on his way through the neck. Oh, yeah. But I guess uh, Howland Reed is still, sir, not appearing in this season, series, baby. as far as we know. You know who will be going up through the neck, though, is Jamie. Because he's going to strangle uh, Cersei's neck? Sh- sure. <laughs> I was going to say, all John is interested in is what's below the neck. So. Oh. The fingers? Okay. okay. He and Danny are going right past the fingers on their way up to uh, White Harbor. Are they on, like, which base are they on? Six? Seven? <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> Have you played baseball what? before? Have you ever watched a baseball game once in your entire life? <laughs> There's so many bases, Jeff. I, don't, I can't keep up. That seems to have really been the biggest thing about the little war council scene, right, is that boat negotiation. Other than that, it's a pretty nondescript scene. Jorah sort of gives a look at the camera, you know. He's like, these guys. I know what's going to happen here. Poor Jorah. He's, he's ridden on some boats in his time. He's. <laughs> I don't know if it happened in the show, but in the books, wasn't when Jorah kissed Danny. It was on a boat when they were sailing. It was on a boat, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. With their flippy floppies. Sailing to... Astapor. Oh... Dat asked to pour. Yeah, he really went for it. Uh, no, that's yeah, that's kind of interesting. Actually, I don't think they did it in the. Sh- I, don't, I can't remember if he kissed her in the show or not. Mm-hmm. No, no, okay, no, no. Okay, no, no, no. But no, he's he's Saint Jorah. It's fine. That's true. He's, he, yeah, it's Saint Jorah. But I I still like that. I still like that connection. Jorah knows. Yeah, it's because of the implication. Okay, <laughs> they're on a boat. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> It's the love boat. It's a little place where we can ride our dragons. So John and Theon have this great little scene together, coming right on the heels of an interview George R. R. Martin gave a few weeks ago, where he said explicitly about how Theon is meant to be a foil for John in the books. So I was glad to see them bring them together on the show as well. Yeah. It felt very much like an arc closure in terms of Theon, Mm. because Theon has been wrestling with his identity, whether he's a Stark or a Greyjoy, for the entirety of his existence, both in the books and the show. And to have Jon tell Theon, you are both, you're a Greyjoy, and you're also a Stark, was a very moving narrative beat Mm -hmm. for Theon's arc and gives him the the courage and the strength to kick some random Ironborn's ass the next (laughs) scene. Yeah. Yeah, especially because in the show they have that scene more where I don't think this mm-hmm. is in the books where Theon says in the show that Ned Stark was his real father yes. to mm-hmm. Ramsay yep. when he believes Ramsay is just like some cohorts with him. Yeah, that was so sad. That was that was pro- that was one of the best scenes I think. My real father died in King's Landing. Yeah. Yes, that one. Yeah. 
we can rip on D&D sometimes, but sometimes they do come up with absolutely amazing moments knowing yeah. these mm-hmm. characters, and that was one of them. And this is kind of a mm-hmm. callback to that, and it's like John giving that affirmative. Mm-hmm. And of course, the obvious subtext here is pretty obvious, I think, that yep. this is this is John Stark Targaryen Sand Snow here. I mean, this is Aegon. 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 Sorry, Aegon, <laughs> Aegon. Sand Stark Targaryen Snow. <laughs> it's just a, a clever way to work that in, especially with the talk of like being a hero and Theon telling John that, "Oh, John, you're such a hero." That kind of thing. I also thought the um, the way they had them choreograph it was really interesting. That they had John on the lowest part, and they had Theon walking down the stairs yeah. to him, trying to get down yes. to like, the same level. He's like coming off mm-hmm. his, "I'm Theon Greyjoy, Prince oh. of." The Iron oh, Islands coming yeah. down to be like, we're just brothers. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it did remind me a lot of what Matt said in the earlier cast about how Theon really didn't look highly no. upon John yeah. earlier mm-hmm. on. They were big rivals mm-hmm. in their own minds. Yeah. The first scene where Theon really has a big role is when they discover the direwolves, and Theon suggests that they kill them all immediately, and John's the one who fights them on it, saying that these are promised to the Stark children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Theon was like, we just, we just do not have the budget, John. And <laughs> <laughs> we'll have that next season, maybe a whole naval battle. But before we get to next season, uh, Theon has to fight Eric Ironmaker hand to hand, or possibly Roderick the Reader, or possibly Harris Harlaw, or <laughs> Gilbert Farwind. <laughs> Gilbert Farwind. How many Ironborn can we name? <laughs> Elaine Orkwood. Yeah. Lucas Cod. Gerald go. Goodbrother. Um, <laughs> Asha Greyjoy, I got it. Who's uh, the guy that Asha sleeps with? Carl the Maid. Torgon the Latecomer. They have a lot of names. I was kind of curious to see what you guys would think about the final stage of the fight scene in which one Ironborn takes a swing at Theon and it has no effect. Uh, it's not super effective mm-hmm. on Theon as it might have been on some <laughs> other specimens. Because there's nothing swinging. Yeah. He's got no egg, Aegon, nor eggs, apparently. So, yeah. I, I don't want to disagree with Dan and Dave. That would still hurt. Uh, it would, right? Yeah. No, I mean, as yeah. someone who has no Aegon or eggs, <laughs> it hurts when you get kicked uh, there. Even if like someone comes behind you and like hits, like knees you in the back of the leg, it's not like that doesn't hurt because there's no Aegon there. No, it turns to steel. <laughs> Eunuchs have just this Ken thing that's like a Ken Barbie thing that's made of steel. You mean fake plastic underwear? <laughs> Is he wearing a cod piece? What's going on? Lucas cod piece. <laughs> Am I right? He named it Lucas? Lucas cod piece, yes. <laughs> Though all men do despise us. <laughs> I have kind of mixed feelings on this. Once again, kind of symptomatic of this problem that I've had since the end of season three, where Theon became that guy who lost his junk. Yeah. And you're not supposed to concentrate on that as a watcher, but this is kind of born out of the fact that they had so many torture scenes in season three that they felt towards the end there that they need to give it a little levity with Ramsay throwing some humor in there, but that made it sort of a laughing moment, like, ha-ha, Theon's the guy who lost his junk. So in some ways, they're going back to this yet again, but at the same time, they did flip it around so it becomes an advantage, which I kind of liked. You can see that on his face, too. You can see that reaction when Theon realized. This worked out finally. Yeah. Everything's coming up, Theon. <laughs> Except it's not. Following Theon's victory over Lucas Codpiece, though all men do despise him, we, we transfer over to 
Winterfell, which is everybody's favorite plot line from this season. This was the least worst episode for it. This season, I think. No. No? The reunion between the siblings earlier on in the season, I, I liked that a lot. Yes. That was good. That was great. Yes. Except Bran has gotten less weird. He's still weird, but he's weird to the point where it's like acceptable weird. Yeah. Yeah, right. And he's... not like and not like uncomfortable weird. He's defragging. He's only using like 50% of his RAM as opposed to like... Yeah. So we have one scene where Sansa talks to Littlefinger, sort of reminiscing over season seven, how it's been. (laughs) And Littlefinger, of course, has yet another creepy monologue, this time about imagining the worst possible scenario. Teaching Sansa a new game. What do you guys think? I, I was curious. Do you think she's playing along with him in this scene? Is that what is that the implication? No, I think that he taught her the game. And that she then applies the game to him and is like, holy crap, he's been playing me the whole time. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, because she says in her little speech, I'm a slow learner, but I learn. Mm-hmm. Do you? So do you think she was doing that in her head? Always in her mind. As she's saying the things about Arya or like off screen? No. Maybe at the last second. After. Okay. Maybe she's like, sure. oh, wait. I'm still not entirely clear about the logistics of Winterfell this season. <laughs> and when Arya got onto the same page as Sansa. I, I feel like the thing in the throne room couldn't have been spur of the moment. It couldn't have been Sansa saying, you know what? No, no. Littlefinger is not on our side. I should kill him. And then just going down and Arya is like, oh yeah, I'm on your wavelength. I totally know where you're going with this. The other implication though is that Bran has revealed something to the siblings right. because he's sitting in mm. the Winterfell throne room along next to Sansa Stark when Arya Stark is let yeah. in. Mm-hmm. There's a missing scene there, yeah. There's a, a missing scene or five missing scenes <laughs> that really could have. Yeah. But it's rushed, but they filled up all of the whole season with stuff that they didn't need in order to get to this point. This is like a three episode arc that they somehow dragged out the whole way. This should have been over pretty quick. They were talking about it on the behind the episode. Their explanation didn't make it work any better. Mm-hmm. Interesting TV and we have to, this is what we want at the end. And so we have to do this to get there. I am never satisfied with their explanations for what Arya is doing. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Maisie's though was really good. Mm. She says she went looking for trouble. I think mm. the more important one was that Arya's whole thing was that she was testing Sansa's loyalty. There's this great quote where she says, everyone wants a happy reunion, but that's not what's going to happen on Game of Thrones. It's not realistic for what they've been through. It's important to have this test of loyalty between them, meaning Sansa and Arya, to have something they overcome together as a team. So I think that 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 storyline works, but I don't think that that was fleshed out at all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the show. Yeah. The whole thing's just a mess. Like, you've got Sansa in this implied scene afterwards going to Bran and asking him about all this stuff. And he's like, oh, did, he killed our father. <laughs> didn't you know? He helped. He held yeah. a dagger to his throat. Yeah. And you've got this problem where Bran is a bit too omniscient here. So you can't actually use him in the story to help yeah. take them down. Where it would have worked better if he was more like the books where you can only see things yes. through werewolves yeah. in the immediate vicinity in the past. Exactly. Yeah. Right, mm. where, yeah, where, where Littlefinger was like, there were no witnesses, nobody can see that. And you could have used Sandor coming up here bringing this information because he was in the throne room at the time. He led the raid down 
And when Littlefinger holds the dagger to Ned's throat, he's the only other person in the frame that you can make out. And as he's looking around, he's looking right at them. <gasps> so I think that would have been a better way than Bram's omniscience to bring about Littlefinger's demise. Yes. Yep. That would have been great. I agree right, yeah. with Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. Sansa, this guy's a creep. You should stay away from him. Yep. The way they really should have written it is that Arya and Sansa were working in cahoots from the very beginning to try and bring down Littlefinger yeah. to test his loyalty yeah. in some way yeah. so that it becomes a game of cat and mouse where you have the two sisters working alongside of Bran yeah. and Bran's sort of you know, going in and out of function given the fact that he's the three-eyed raven apparently. Right. <laughs> so he's not much help and he's only helpful in, in certain spots because maybe Bran's looking for – Facts about John, John Snow, mm. and the night he's, he's obsessed with the Night King too. So there's these dual things that he thinks are more important, which you know are more important than determining Littlefinger's loyalty. Yeah, you could have just had a whole murder mystery the entire season, where it's about the two of them working together to bring Littlefinger down. I think that would have been more engaging for the viewer overall. Yeah. Than this weird twist at the end, where you got characters working against each other in kind of bizarre ways, where they are threatening to murder each other. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that I think the end of the story, it works with most of the Winterfell scenes they did, and it could have used one or two more. The one scene that still doesn't fit Arya threatening Sansa, because the tone of that scene just, just felt, I still can't resolve it yeah. With, yeah. with the story. The rest of them kind of resolve neatly with yes. this finale, except that scene, and I, I still can't mm. figure out how that one fits. Yeah, because the other ones, you just have this sister-sibling tension. Mm-hmm. What they could have mm-hmm. done... And it wouldn't have required Bran, and it wouldn't have required 40 chess, is they could, just could have done the letter Arya found from Littlefinger. Sansa just investigates that a little bit more and finds the letter from Lysa to Kat. And then at the trial, she just drops it. That's it. Game over. That's the end of the thing. And, it may, and it's satisfying in that they start off kind of dumb, but they eventually get to where they need to to convict Littlefinger without stupid omniscient Bran doing ev- all the work for them. Yeah, but Catelyn burned that letter, and Maester Lewin was standing right there, so if he d- keeps a record of that when he knows that she doesn't, and it threatens people's lives, that like damages Maester Lewin's character to keep that around. It solves one problem, but then it also creates another, so... Sansa started off with talking about Lysa and the Moon Door and how she knows that Littlefinger killed Lysa. She knows that Littlefinger had Lysa poison John Aaron. That's enough to sentence and execute Littlefinger right there. It could have been that, like, Sansa's holding onto the secret this whole time, and it's, like, really the only thing she has over Littlefinger, and maybe he finally does something that really ticks her off. Maybe he tries to, like, negotiate some kind of marriage alliance or something, and she's finally like, look, dude, you know, I'm the Lady of Winterfell, and you're working for me, and I'm not going to put up with it anymore. And then someone's like, oh, and by the way, he killed your father. And that's the last straw, right? Like, she always had enough information to do this. Well, it's also the point about, like, Sansa knows that stuff about Lysa and Littlefinger to begin with. And so with Bronze Yon in the room. Yes. It kind of drives a wedge between the two of them where she's known this the entire time, but she hasn't mm. told him yeah. about it. So I don't think that's ever going to come nope. up anymore. No. But that's gone. No. She shouldn't reveal that if she's been sitting on it so much. Yes. To maintain the loyalty of her lords. 
<laughs> who are already who are yeah. who are just going everywhere, yeah. jumping ship uh. at every opportunity to pick <laughs> a different. But you know what? They love a good execution. These guys, they do love a good execution. The one uh, positive thing about this, though, I think we can all agree, is the acting from Aiden Gillian as uh. he got verbally slapped down by Sansa in front of everybody and collapses onto his knees and begs for his life. Uh. It's all I ever wanted. That was so satisfying. I know that his performances haven't always been received well in this show. I loved him as an actor before Game of Thrones. What are you talking about? And he's the reason why I feel anything for Littlefinger. And I thought that scene was excellent. It was, it was, so it was greatly choreographed. Yeah. The look on his face like, oh, what? Those eye movements. The panic. when when Yes, yes. When she said Lord Baelish and it was just like his yeah. eyes. Yeah. Why? Sort of- it, it was really well panicked animal he could have easily overplayed that as an actor i think like the lord baelish thing <laughs> what Me, you know like like really <laughs> hammed it up but I, I thought it was he really captured the idea that Littlefinger is like, up to the very last minute still trying to find some way to like weasel out of it to like convince her mm-hmm. but it's breaking and breaking and break you know like it's you could almost see like lines cracking through his body because that's what it felt like. It was it was really great. It was it was. Turns out chaos really isn't a ladder. Mm-hmm. It's a pit. It's deep, super deep. And then right after that, when Sansa's reflecting on it, and she's like, "He really did love me." Yeah. Not um, I don't know, emotional, but he wasn't entirely working against me. He really did love me, and yet I still had to kill him. It's one of the advantages of a story like Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire where you have these characters who've known for so long, who have been related to so many characters in so many ways, that even when Littlefinger dies, it it is a loss because it's like, hmm. I guess we don't have Tricky Dick to kick around anymore, right? We don't have <laughs> Tricky Peter to kick around anymore. That's true. Um, <laughs> that works yeah. too. I did think it was funny during his takedown where they essentially had to spell out what they were doing with Sansa and Arya where... Uh, Sansa was like, you tried to pit me against Arya like you did with Cat and Lysa. I'm like, oh, that's what you were doing. Okay. All right. That was his plan. Finally, it's explained to us. (laughs) They explained the plot of season seven to us, which was really helpful. It's like, like, thank thank you, Sansa. I'm glad. And the writers, I'm glad we finally got that on like the R plus L equals J banner of like, this was what happened. Yeah. In fact, we're we're going to get to that imminently. I mean, uh, Arya and Sansa have their little, you know, woo-woo on the parapets, and that's really <laughs> nice. But Sam shows up in Winterfell. One thing, wait, one thing can I mention before that? So we we get the whole nice callback to the lone wolf dies and the pack yes. survives. Which is actually somewhat ironic, because it's actually the pack that dies and the wolf survives. Um, there we go. Wherever it is. <laughs> I found that it was it was nice they were reflecting upon their father. Nobody has mentioned Cat. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about this is our father's room. Yeah. You killed father. And nobody ever talks about Cat. Well, that's because she's Lady Stoneheart now. Yeah, she's still alive. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, no, I, you're right, though. You're right. It, it's it's true. She's absent. Uh, except for, of course, the Cat and Liza. Yeah, you're pitting us against each other like Cat and Liza. But yeah. But they're not remembering her. Right. It's not about cats. Like they're remembering their father. Exactly. It's weird, especially like, as you said, because she's brought up in the context of Kat and Liza. And then Sansa's in somewhat of the position that she's in because she had 
she was just unlucky or whatever to have been born looking exactly like her mother. And because of that, this weirdo had an obsession with her. Yeah. Yet no one's like, man, I really miss mom. Like, yeah, I can't believe she had to deal with that guy. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, Like Littlefinger brings her up. Like I would have died for your mother. I really loved her. And the girls don't mention her yeah and it's like the whole reason Arya started off the season right i mean part of it was for rob but she also killed lord frey in a way that was similar to how catelyn stark died Mm -hmm. and i also think that Arya should have come up behind littlefinger and from behind the same way she did lord frey the same way catelyn stark Mm -hmm. was killed Mm -hmm. i agree the same way that littlefinger held up ned stark and when he betrayed right I still, I still say that it wouldn't have worked though, staging wise, and it wouldn't have worked because she's so much smaller to get behind oh, him. He was it would have given him a physical advantage. He was, he was kneeling. Yeah, but she needed to do it quickly. They should have just left her back in the corner or something. I, I would have loved that. Yeah, yeah. It's awkward to stand over someone's legs while they're kneeling to slit their throat. It's awkward to slit someone's throat in general it's like not a socially normal thing to do but you know whatever she's it's an awkward thing to do man she's pretty good at it yeah so sam sam shows up at winterfell in his little cart mm-hmm. samwise not sam r not Sa- not our moderator sam r <laughs> he, he immediately goes to see bran his old buddy who he let through the wall back in season three episode 10 and I, I really like Sam's face. He's, he does the best, like, nonplussed expression <laughs> on the show. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. You're the three. Oh, okay. It's kind of like a little kid that's declared he's, like, a new superhero. It's like, oh, yeah, nice job, buddy. Way to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like how they get right into the meat of it. No waiting around. No, how have you been? Just, listen, John's a Targaryen. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, he's a sand. Wait, no. (laughs) That whole conversation between Sam and Bran is literally conversations that have happened on the sub where someone will be like, you know, well, John was going to find out about Rhaegar and Lyanna being his parents and then he'll be a real Targ. And it's like, no, but shouldn't his name be Sam because he was born in (laughs) Dorne? And then people will be like, no, because it's not based on where you're born. It's based on where you were raised. It should be snow. It's definitely something that has been discussed. Almost in those exact words. Yeah. On the subreddit. Yes. Multiple times. I'm glad we finally showed up on the screen. (laughs) Aswaf cameo. <laughs> that one and the the discussion between Sansa and Arya about whether they would have survived each other's ordeals. Oh yeah, that's the other one. That's like the sub discussions, right? It's like, well, Arya would have never survived in King's Landing. That was straight out of the sub. Yes, or it could have been like the Tower of the Hand or that old Yuko board. The fandom. Where Dan and Dave did post on Westeros.org many moons ago, many years ago, no. asking about casting. They were oh. never as nerdy as we are have they invitation dan and dave dan and dave come on quill and tanker come on maester monthly <laughs> <laughs> they're never gonna come on this show brian cogman might come on he would never come uh, on. <laughs> wait 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 uh, we got jeff hartline on this show we can get anybody <laughs> who was that again the writer mm-hmm. of cautioner's tale yeah. brian cogman might come on once we get very much bigger if he actually trust us yeah right and then we like we cut him from the call and we're like we did warn you not to trust us <laughs> <laughs> brian cogman though from what elio said he's kind of like a fans writer as much as sometimes we might be critical of the show like as people have said we don't tend to take ourselves that seriously and we still love the show maybe after the show's over he- some yeah yeah someday not not like tomorrow yeah so this Sam and Bran scene with their 
debate over John's last name leads into what well, one of the all-time great montages on television. I think we can all agree. No. <laughs> no, we cannot. And also an incredible reveal that I don't think anybody saw coming. What? Especially not Bran. Yeah. How come Bran didn't <sighs> see the thing about the wedding? But... <sighs> Brand's a search engine. That's what they're yes. modeling him on. Yeah. You just need to put the correct terms in the search engine and he'll get anything. But if you don't have them correctly. And Sam, having just spent the last year or so in the university, knows how to use Google. Yeah. Brand's been hitting, I've been feeling lucky instead of search. Right. But this, it didn't. I, I got you, Jeff. In some ways, the reveal didn't feel like a general buildup because they haven't done anything really with Rhaegar in a long time. Like you go back to season four and you've got that scene with Oberyn and Tyrion where they talk about Rhaegar and you've got stuff with Sansa and Littlefinger in the crypts and also between Barristan and Daenerys. But then this season, it's like you, all you get is that Ragger reference that... Gilly makes. Yeah. And because it's been so long, and if you're only just watching the show and not reading the stuff out in the fandom, you probably wouldn't hear much about Rhaegar at all. So from an overall story sense, it doesn't feel like a fulfilling narrative that they've played up this season that had like an introduction, a middle, and then like this is the conclusion. That's why I come to the show is to experience a nice story and a nice narrative. As Michael said in the last podcast, something that makes me feel good in my belly. Mm-hmm. But what we got is just kind of a bomb drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did anybody else feel the whole thing with Littlefinger meant that he knew it was that last season and that he was going to use that as leverage to try to kick John out of the throne and to put Sansa in? Yeah, that's where I thought he was going with that. And instead, they just punted. That, that. was actually two seasons ago. That was season five. Bef- two? Before, no Before he way. leaves Sansa at, with the Boltons. Oh, my God. Um, that's right. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I, it is kind of, I mean, God, we keep saying the same thing over and over again every cast. I don't know why, but they could have used like 20 more minutes per episode. Just a little bit of brand, looking in the past, talking to somebody, just building up anything about this. Well, the, the thing about it that just is so frustrating to me when I'm, when I'm watching it, maybe it's, there has to be a point where I have to turn off my brain. <laughs> but mm-hmm. Bran tells Sam, Rhaegar is John's father. In another vision that's not featured in the show because we see right. Bran only sees the end of season six that John is Lyanna's son. Mm-hmm. So we have to assume there's a scene off the screen where Bran goes back and sees that Rhaegar and, and Lyanna are the uh, the parents. Mm-hmm. But then we have to also make the assumption that Bran didn't go any farther back than just that scene where the conception happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, to see that them getting married. So this comes as a shock to him because it's supposed to be a shock to the viewers. And it just frustrates me as it just the assumptions that you have to make and you have to have characters acting stupidly in order to get this big reveal moment and i just it's very arbitrary it's arbitrary right like you were about, like about to say yeah wouldn't it have been funny if they played it so that bran thought that ned was still his father that it was like ned and liana oh that would be oh he got confused and then <laughs> right and then like sam comes in and he's like no liana married rhaegar and he's like oh wow, that makes way more sense I feel this is a self-inflicted pl- problem. They did not have to give Bran the ability to seed the Dorn. Yes. They could have given this reveal to anybody else. Yeah. This is this is the show's problem. George is not going to have this problem, presumably, because of the limits he's put on Bran's omniscience. Yeah. Somebody else is going to have to reveal this to John or somebody else to tell John. This is their own fault. 
And what would have been better than what they have here, in or even Bran giving this exposition, is to get Sean Bean back in order to give this reveal, because that ties everything all together. It ties it back into him carrying John up, and because it, it feels so strange that it's coming from Bran being Three-Eyed Raven, because it feels so impersonal, because Bran was just a little kid when he knew John. If it was coming from Ned it would have been way more impactful. Yeah. yeah. And there's the perfect moment when they can do this, and that's in the very first episode when Catelyn walks into the godswood with the letter from Lysa and hands it to Ned as he's cleaning ice in front of the heart tree. You cut right into that scene as Catelyn walks to get up because there, there's also dialogue here where Ned is saying there's only one reason Robert could be coming north. As the viewer, we assume because what Catelyn says, you can always say no, Ned, that it's supposed to be about Ned being asked to be hand of the king. But Ned is actually in this moment thinking about John. So you can cut into the scene right as Catelyn leaves. Ned turns to the tree. It reframes that sequence. And then he starts to talk about John. And he says to the tree, like he's praying to his gods, about Rhaegar and Lyanna's kid being John. And that's when the viewer learns the big reveal. Oh, that would have been dope. And you can also lift it straight from Bran's third chapter from A Dance with Dragons, where Bran sees Ned Stark. Mm-hmm kneeling before the heart tree exactly and he hears ned say let them grow up as brothers yeah Mm -hmm. so you have that moment where you can lift it straight from the books and it wouldn't you know ruin any thing necessarily from the winds of winter of how george is going to end up revealing it but you you have that really meaningful scene and bringing sean bean back is is a brilliant idea and i think that's something that they could have thought of if uh maybe they had the time to you know six years to figure out how to unravel a plot no that sean bean would have done that didn't sean bean say he was willing to come back on the show oh yeah yeah he did he was like that would be awesome yes they wanted to show the fight at the tower of joy and they want to have bran being their Mm -hmm. um their exposition machine instead of doing a better story with this you could just find sean bean put him on a soundstage somewhere he doesn't have, there hasn't to be anybody else there. That's true. They could just bring him in to do like an ADR into a sound room yeah. and say and yeah. have him do the voiceover and maybe just a shot from him like singing in front of the heart it, tree. It could literally be an extra from behind. They could do what uh, David Lynch did with David Bowie in the new season of Twin Peaks and replace him with a giant tea kettle. Um sure. Spoiler alert, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah, it's another way to do it. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, yeah, I, I I, agree. I would have loved to see Sean Bean come back, especially with all the Ned talk that's gone around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This would have been the episode. Right. This would have been the episode to do Lady Stoneheart, let's be real. but um, That's true. Oh, then we could have had both mom and dad. <laughs> Speaking of atrocities um, and abominations <laughs> against human nature, um. John's real name is Aegon Targaryen. Uh, it's mm. it that is wrong. His name is Amon. But is it? Amon is correct. But there's a uh, there's a, a line that someone pointed out to me from from dance where uh, Maester Amon. It takes a man to rule an Aegon, not an egg. Uh, where Amon tells John this right before Amon sets off with Samuel to Eastwatch. So yeah, someone pointed out to me on on Twitter that this is potential foundation work for John to actually be named Aegon and. Not Amon after all, even though I think Amon is a better better choice and would have more resonance to the viewer to be to be named Amon, because you were with Amon at five seasons and Aegon, there's not the same emotional 
appeal to them. Mm -hmm. Well, here's one thing that I do ask myself about. And when George was talking about R plus L equals J, or well, what's inferred to be R plus L equals J a long time ago, he said that when people were discovering a mystery that he put in his books, that he couldn't go back and uproot it. To do that would destroy all the foreshadowing and stuff that he's laid out before. So the question here is, is Aegon something that George thought of, number one, I guess, or two, if that is true, is Aegon something that George thought of a long time ago and he's been laying these seeds forever? Because if that's true, then he wouldn't uproot them. However, he may have never decided on a name for John when he started writing the series, or he could have started out being Aemon and decided against that later on because it didn't really work for him and he didn't feel like the foreshadowing that he was laying down was as necessary to keep intact and he thought that he had a better idea for it yeah despite being a long time Aegon believer i do see why aemon works in a certain context because aemon and daenerys are the two most prominent targaryens in the story that we've known for a long time mm -hmm. and so it makes sense that the name resonates more with people than Aegon. yeah that's, that's true. true and there's the uh the memory of John when he's fighting with uh, Rob and they call out their heroes, John's already called himself Aemon. Yeah. This is already mm -hmm. a thing. He hasn't called himself Aegon. He calls himself Aemon the Dragon Knight. Mm -hmm. I think that's a stronger foundational thing than Mr. Aemon saying it takes an egg to be a king. Because I think that, that that's cheap. I don't... I'm sorry whoever said that. That was Jeff. <laughs> what? Never mind. Uh, not sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> I don't know. really know though. Like the... Is one line spoken in any of the books, especially the first book, like this line between Rob and John, that was said so long ago that is that strong enough foundation for what would lay the groundwork for what John's name really is? And I think we've just kind of like stretched it out in the fandom that it should be Eamon and that people are kind of upset because it's not what they previously believed and that they, they like the idea that it resonated more with Maester Eamon. But that's not really a, a, a super strong thing that helps aid in writing the story or makes the story interesting. I'm with you, brother. There is, though, a possibility that this is not coming from George because, as Brian Cogman has previously stated, this is Dan and David's vision of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. So I wonder if things like Eastwatch and John being named Aegon mm -hmm. aren't things that they have theorized would be nice earlier on in the story, and George may not have decided on them, and these are the just the ideas that they've decided to run with. Is this something that the showrunners would go way out on a limb on and would totally go opposite from the way that George has planned right. for John's name to be revealed? Yeah. And it feels like something endgame that George would tell david and dan yes. back when they were talking right yeah you don't i don't see them totally flipping the script on this although i i i, I guess it's possible but i it, it feels something george if that makes sense it also feels like George because the story is set up that the number seven is a holy number. In, in literature all over the place, authors love having like specific numbers mean something. So it seems weird that George would be so close to having a character who is named the seventh and not decide to do it. Because if you're going to make somebody Azor High, having them be a specific number like Aegon the seventh would make thematic sense within the context of the story. And to undercut my own Aemon thing, um, lar a large part of the reason that Aemon works thematically is that we know that Aemon and Rhaegar were very close, and that Rhaegar's relationship with him was a defining one in his life. They haven't done that at all in the show. 
they have not really established that Eamon and Rhaegar were close-knit, that they ever really talked to each other. It's it's just, they just kind of ignored it. I wonder if it's more something like when George read that John sample chapter years ago, I don't know, I can't remember when it was, the one where he executes the John O'Slint. And in the original version of the chapter, John hangs him. Right. But then George hears feedback from fans saying, no, no, John wouldn't do it that way. He would behead him. And so George goes back and rewrites it. And that's how the final mm-hmm. version is. That's what John does. So if in the course of George's conversations with Dave and Dan, I wonder if he said, yeah, you know, and John's name's going to be Aegon. But it's one of those things where he hasn't gotten there yet, so he hasn't completely fleshed out the details himself. I'm reaching. I hate that Aegon is his name, but... No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It works so well in the context of the books, because, okay, because George has decided to have Aegon VI invade Westeros, and we know, presumably, that Danny is going to be confronting him at some point in the next book. And George loves to write from Danny's POV, especially about, like, the human heart and conflict with itself. Right. It's the only things worth writing about. So... It stands to reason that he's that Danny is going to be in a big conflict with deciding what to do about Aegon, the sixth. Should she conquer all the lands that he's already taken in Westeros? Is he actually her relative? Mm-hmm. Maybe she believes it and she's struggling with all of these thoughts. And then maybe at the end, maybe she realizes that he was actually a mummer's dragon. He wasn't actually a real Targaryen. Yeah. And so then it feeds into her relationship eventually when she comes into contact with John. If he's named Aegon the Seventh, mm-hmm. because she's already had this conflict with a guy who was Aegon the Sixth and was false, but John is actually real, that colors her relationship a lot more with John than it does if he was named Aemon. Like it, him being mm-hmm. Aemon doesn't do anything for the story. It's not about John and Aemon's relationship at this point. It's about Danny and John's relationship and how that colors her POV that makes it good to read. But why, why, why in the story, like, forget about, like, what D&D are planning or what Grimm is planning in the story, why would you have two children named Aegon? Because Rhaegar's thought process is so contorted with the mystical visions and prophecies and all this sort of stuff that if he had a kid that was that close to being named Aegon Seventh, he would decide to go for it just because of the spiritual and mystical like significance of it. He would only be the seventh if the first Aegon died, and he hadn't died at the point when John was born. He did. He was, no, he was dead by the time that John was the born. The Sack of King's Landing occurs before the Tower of Joy. But Rhaegar, Rhaegar was- I guess, though, since Rhaegar had died before, then- Well, no, they could they could have talked. They could have talked about the name. Right. So if Rhaegar died before his- first son Aegon was killed then either A Rhaegar his having a discussion with Lyanna to name his second son also Aegon or Lyanna deciding to name it in which case Rhaegar wasn't involved maybe Rhaegar had told her that there must be an Aegon to defeat the others or whatever because it's foretold somewhere that it just has to be and maybe Rhaegar was pragmatic about it he was like yo this is a war people do get killed if Aegon is still alive, then you can name him like whatever. But if Aegon the Sixth has died, then you should name him Aegon because it, it, there has to be an Aegon, just like there must be a Stark in Winterfell, like one of those things. Doesn't feel right. Here's my mm-hmm. headcanon, right? So 
one of the first hints that John is not Ned's bastard and is in fact the child of Lyanna and Rhaegar, specifically Rhaegar, comes in A Game of Thrones. Ned Stark goes to the brothel and visits the unnamed whore, but she's named in the show, I forgot what her name is in the show, who has named her bastard daughter by Robert Baratheon, Bara. And Ned's like, that's a stupid name in his head. He's that's a dumb name because it's totally obvious. It's not even subtle that it's secretly Robert Baratheon's child. And like the person who chooses this stupid name is <laughs> the mother of this child, right? And then Ned leaves the brothel and he thinks to himself, I don't know. I, I don't think Rhaegar Targaryen would have frequented brothels and he's like thinking about Rhaegar and stuff or maybe mm-hmm. it was on the way yeah, there yeah. and then soon after he has that encounter that ends up being in some ways similar to the encounter Ned has at the Tower of Joy uh, with Jamie Lannister and then soon after he has the dream because like this experience reminded him so much of his experience with Lyanna he has those fever dreams about being at the Tower of Joy I think that in some ways because this entire experience reminded him of John and John's parentage so closely. We could assume, if we wanted to, that Lyanna was the one who chose to name the child oh, Aegon. That's a good point. Because then it becomes a parallel to this bastard that Ned yeah. saw that reminded him of John. Interesting. I like that. Running with that a little bit, is that Lyanna sort of supplanting Elia a little bit in her mind? I mean, is it her saying, ah, well, I'm going to have my own set of three kids and it's going to work this time and like like this prophecy he believed in or or is that going too far is that describing too much motive that we can't at that point liana would have been read in probably by rhaegar on the prophecy and probably would have known what their child was meant for there's no way rhaegar doesn't tell her that so she may have thought i'm going to give him the conqueror's name because that's what she thinks it means and she may be wrong yeah at that point, Liana doesn't think she's having two more kids. At that point, Liana's like, yo, I'm dying. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah good She's point. trying to shove him out there. And uh, to go back to what Aaron was saying, if we wanted to take this from Rhaegar's perspective, there's a lot about Rhaegar we don't know. We don't know exactly what motivated him. He could have talked to the ghost of High Heart. He could have read something weird in a book or a prophecy. It could literally be as specific somewhere it's written or somebody told him it has to be an Aegon that destroys the others. It could be literally that specific. It might not be, but it's a possibility. Be a lot more specific than a lot of prophecies that we've had. That would be the worst prophecy ever. <laughs> it would be. It really would be. It would be amazing. It would be hilarious. I saw somewhere people were speculating that Leanna named him Aegon as sort of a memory of baby Aegon, who, oh. when John was born would have died in the sack of King's Landing. Oh, memorial? Uh, like in honor of. Yeah. Yeah. We don't I mean we don't know. I mean you could you you could put whatever detail you want in there. That one feels right to me just thinking about naming a baby. Yeah. I can take that, sure. R- rather than it has to be an Aegon prophecy. I agree. I guess and I mean it's kind of smart of Rhaegar to have like Lyanna and her kid down at the Tower of Joy, and then Ellie and the other kids in a different place, because you don't want to put all your eggs in one eggs in basket. One basket? Oh. No. oh my god. Oh. You're gone now. <laughs> oh, delete your account. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was saying earlier, now if if John is named Aegon, we have three dragon eggs. Yes. To some extent. In the story, we have Aegon the Sixth, we have Phaegon, and then we have Aegon Targaryen, the seventh. 
We have all the eggs. The the omelet must have three eggs. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good omelet, actually. That's a pretty good omelet. Need some sausage in there. So real quick, speaking of sausage. Oh boy. Yeah, we <laughs> should actually speak? talk about oh, what else well, I was, was I happening. Was gonna throw out some. Hold on I one swear second. To God. One second. I swear there were some God. good one-liners from our users on the subreddit. I wanted to throw okay. them in here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, in the post-episode discussion, Continuum Guy said that Rhaegar is the George Foreman of Westeros. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, a lot of people, the joke went right over their head, although they did understand that his father was really into grilling. <laughs> um, <laughs> but of, oh of course, George, George Foreman named all of his kids George Foreman. Right. Um, that's the joke. Mm-hmm. And dash purple dash is dash a dash fruit dash commented in that same thread and said when a Targaryen is born the gods flip a coin to see if he'll be named Aegon or not <laughs> which I liked I, I liked that one quite a lot mm-hmm. that was a good one wrong on the username purple is actually a color not a fruit oh, you're right I didn't spot that nice catch can you imagine being like a Targaryen heir not being named Aegon you just like say to your, like, your dad like do you not believe in me like do you not think I can do great things <laughs> I can be an Aegon. No, you're going to be John. No, you're going to be Eustace. <laughs> Get wrecked, Eustace. No, you're Anus. Anus, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to call you Magor. How about that? Wait, what's a Magor? It's not Aegon. It, it clearly pissed him off. Let's be honest about Magor. He didn't. He did, clearly didn't like that name. S- someone said, speaking of sausages, and yes, yeah. there is. Ooh, um, spicy. Uh, Kit Harrington's massive buttocks are featured heavily in this <laughs> scene. He uh, does squats, man. He does, yeah, he must. Um, yeah. Yeah, so John and his aunt. Um, uh, Aegon and his aunt. Aegon and his Excuse aunt. Excuse you. apologies. Yeah, I hope nobody actually calls him that next season. Aegon and his aunt Aegon? Um, they Aegon. <laughs> yeah. the, the big reveal next season is that Danny's real name is Aegon she, as well. She gets to see his Aegon. Throws a little egg on her face. Boom. Oh, no. Oh, no. 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 Wow. No. <laughs> anyway. Um, Go because on, I'm, please. I'm going to just cut all of it. This is good banter. I can't imagine why. Mm. And at the same time, it's revealed, obviously, that John is the heir to the Iron Throne, which this all seems to be set up to cause some serious friction next season, right? This whole twist. <laughs> oh, <laughs> damn it. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I was going to say, they need some, uh, some Astroglide? Cause... <laughs> Stop it. Oh, my Matthew. God. Matthew. <laughs> Leave it. I think um, that should go in. Definitely. <laughs> Um, that John is, is the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, right? And so, I, mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this is, at least thematically, the way the reveal is going to go down the books, that it's not going to be good for John, that it's going to be, that everything's going great, and then John finds out that he's actually, that this magical scion of the Dragon King is, because in any other fantasy story, that could be a great thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he could be Aragorn going to the Paths of the Dead, and... But um, instead, it's obviously going to destroy his relationships and just ruin his life, which is great. It's great fun. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and there was a good post on this um, by Twisted Chet, who says, is it really a good idea that they should tell John? Yeah. Because this is just going to make things worse. If they covered it up, wouldn't actually improve things for everybody. Yeah. This big cover up. 
I mean, because- I did wonder why Bran was so insistent. Like, we have to tell John he's the heir. It's like, why? He's already a king. What is he? He doesn't even want the Iron Throne. To stop what happened on the boat. Maybe he was like, we, we can't have more that's of that. That's true. Bran did say in that scene that he can see everything that's happening at that moment. So is the implication that he's like, the we've got to tell John. <laughs> <laughs> because, because Bran is the Night's King and the uh, others have nope. an issue with incest. No, no, stop you right there. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Jeff made news about uh, about the Night King theory. Yeah. That's right. We have. A, I, I did a newsmaking yeah. famous person. Did you? You made Twitter. Twitter news. Oh well, that's, that's which the, is which is the most important right. news. The most reliable too. Mm-hmm. It's good to be recognized by such a noted source. <laughs> <laughs> the brain trust of Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I kind of agree with that point. I not the that. Not that, brain trust not that Twitter is a brain trust. That um, <laughs> it's probably not a good idea to tell John. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. not only will it destroy his position as King in the North or Lord of Winterfell, because I think it would now go to Bran by by rights. Bran's giving it up, though. Well, I mean, it was already always Bran. They all probably tried this with Bran off screen, and he was like. Ah, uh, but you see, I am the wizard. And they're like, okay, all right, no. fine. Well, then the Sansa, well, the Sansa or yeah. But also, it's going to cause him to question all the lessons he learned from Ned. Even if he eventually comes back to him, he's like, yeah, Ned was still my dad. Rhaegar is not my father. Yeah. This is not a good time for Jon to be questioning the lessons from Ned Stark. He's still going to have an identity crisis. Yeah, this is a bad time for that. Well, maybe it would feed into later. I mean, yes, in the immediate yes. aftermath, but it would feed into like Theon maybe coming back to John and helping him out from the reverse right. angle. Like, mm. oh, this was actually you're still your father. I so. think it could also help John understand his role as sort of like the hero because it's like, why was I brought back from the dead? Why? Because I'm the child who was created. For to fulfill this prophecy to save humanity, whether that's something he wants to do or not. Speaking of prophecy, there's a neat little topic on tinfoil here from War Room Fighter, who wonders if the scene back down in the Citadel where Sam interrupts the Maester Council was a foreshadowing for a Jon Snow and Euron conflict. If you recall, the Archmaester brings up the prophecy of Lodos, Crazy Lotos, who prophesies that the Drowned God would reach up and tear down Aegon the Conqueror. Does that Aegon now refer to Jon Snow? Hmm. Wait, that Aegon would be taken down by the Drowned God? Yes. Yeah, in the conversation with that Sam overhears, Lotos says the people prayed that oh, yeah. a Kraken would save them from Aegon the Conqueror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he washed, he walked into the waves and drowned himself when it didn't come true. Theon also walked into the waves in the episode. Yeah. Just saying, or, <laughs> Poignant. Yeah. And his actions of punching that guy's face parallels John punching Ramsay <laughs> after the peril. No, yeah. like, it's ah. really insane. That's a good point, actually. I hadn't- yeah. Wow. I knew it. I knew it looked familiar. Nice job. Yeah. I'm full of good points. Just like the Iron Throne. You're like a hedgehog. A hedgehog? A hedgehog. <laughs> Is she going fast? <laughs> full of good yeah. points. Eliana, go fast. Like, as it uh, is it is it that I like really want to get close to people, but I can't because we hurt each other? Wow, you went way deeper. I was gonna say like I was gonna say Sanic, or like the World War II depth charge weapon. I don't know what that is. It's called a hedgehog. It's depth charges because you drop deep bombs. <laughs> Never mind. 
<laughs> I think I'm the one dropping deep bombs right now. Moving on. Creepy Tyrion is creepy. Yeah, we've got Creepy Tyrion. It's not really clear why. There's a lot of speculation. Maybe he's fallen in love with Danny. I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot of speculation. It, it's it's an open plot <laughs> yeah, point for next season. The- is basically, I think, the most we can definitively say about it. Right? It's clearly just open thing for next season to resolve. Yeah. Right. Speculation about whether it's because he's betrayed them with Cersei. Speculation about whether he's um, fearful of what Cersei's going to do to them. Speculation of that he's jealous of their relationship or maybe one of their influence on the other or his loss of power in Danny's regime. Yeah. Uh, There's uh, and there's maybe all of. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Sad that he didn't get invited. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That it's actually his bedroom and and they forgot. And. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are these your clothes in the dryer because i need to <laughs> uh, he's actually he's come to fix the cable but he um oh, no, never mind. I, he's uh, delivering pizza yeah. <laughs> oh gosh dude so and then it, there was a an interview that um the actors all did sort of as a like a look into that scene and peter dinklage says that Tyrion's reading of it is that it's dangerous for everyone involved. He said the quote was, it's not good, but it should be good, but it's not because it's Game of Thrones. And it's hard to know if he's giving that little pithy, you know, it's Game of Thrones as like a promo thing. Everybody's gonna die. Like, yeah. Or if that's look into what was actually happening in the scene. Because I mean, we've been talking about how much a marriage alliance between Danny and Jon makes sense politically mm-hmm. it seems to me like that would be the least bad thing if john showed up in the north and said hey look at this i'm gonna marry the dragon queen and we're gonna unite the thrones again the north would probably be like all right that's cool as opposed to i'm gonna kneel and be her subject and they're like well that's weak mm-hmm. we want sansa soft <laughs> yeah maybe it's like dangerous that they're hooking up without a marriage alliance on the books yet maybe he means it that way yeah. i don't know you yeah. can work that out later. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like it. I'm, it didn't I'm seem trying to like figure it. They can bang that out later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Crack some eggs. Yeah, in terms of in terms of interpersonal barriers shattering and coming down. We get Beric and Tormund watching as uh, something comes out of the forest. Something creepy. And then of course it becomes World of Warcraft uh, in that trailer for the Lich King expansion. Uh-huh. Um, this is correct. Yeah. With, what was Cintragosa? Cintragosa, yeah, yeah, coming to the wall and just just roasting it with. I think in the official episode guide, it's blue fire. They say it's blue fire, right, Jeff? Yep. So uh, our friend of the show Azad tweeted out that it was actually blue fire. So it's not blue ice or some sort of ice breath. It is um, mm-hmm. some sort of fire substance. And actually, fire can be blue. Just turn your if you have a gas stove, mm-hmm. turn your, <laughs> yeah. your stove on. You'll see some blue fire yeah. there. Everyone should just watch Avatar The Last Airbender and like... This is correct. <laughs> or stare at your stove. Just, here's pro tip from Maester Monthly. <laughs> Turn on your gas stove and just get really close to it and stare at it. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. We're not responsible for anything that happens. <laughs> I also made the very good suggestion of watch Avatar The Last Airbender. That's that way safer and way more that enjoyable. <laughs> unobjectively good. It's one of my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movies. I was going to say, unless you're talking about the movie, in which case no, it's probably meant- better to watch no, 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 a gas no. stove. The movie's no, just the, the last airbender. Exactly. Matt no- Matt gets me. I'm sorry. Aegon gets me. Aegon gets Aegon. me. Aegon. Yeah. So what did, I, what did you guys think? I mean, we've known the wall was coming down since since we knew there was a wall, right? I mean, it's it was always going to happen somehow. 
Mm-hmm. Is this how you pictured it? No. 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 <laughs> it's got to be a horn in the book mm. in some way. I like the dragon better. <laughs> I, I don't. I think a horn. I think. I mean, I know it's going to be a horn, and I had accepted that's what it's going to be until I found out that Viserion is going to be an ice dragon. I thought that was way cooler and makes a lot more sense than a magic horn. And I don't ask me why, for some reason, a magic horn is my limit of suspension of disbelief. It's exactly too. there. You know, like, I'm cool with an ice dragon. I'm cool with zombies. I'm cool with resurrection. But God damn it, I draw the line at a magic horn. <laughs> Based on what Weiss said in the inside of the episode, they weren't given a definitive thing by George as far as what takes down the wall or how they get past it i I got the same thing too and as far as me looking at stuff in the fandom it feels like because i was talking with eliana about this earlier was that it depends on like where you approach the the show or the books as far as your subjective like knowledge if you're a musician you believe it's going to be a horn if you're an (laughs) astronomer you believe it's going to be a meteor if you're an archaeologist you believe it's going to be a fire worm up at hard (laughs) home And it seems like George has placed like wow. these this number of different things. If if you're a marine biologist, you think it's going to be a white kraken. Wait, what? It's like th- there are these number so, of different what? things that George has placed into the story. <laughs> Wait, I'm, as far I'm as sorry. Like, I, I Aaron, missed... do you have like? When did we talk about this? The, during the the history of Westeros podcast, you were like, "What do you think takes down the wall or something like that?" Oh, and I just said a horn. Aaron, it's like you just. I don't know. You said like. It's like you use a random like word generator to come up with ways to take down the wall. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's I... like George has set these things up in the books. He has set he set the fireworms up at Hardhome. He set the horn up. He set he set up the red comic. He set up the the idea of krakens. So it can be a number of different ways. The tunnels again underneath the wall by uh what are the two people called that tunnel Gendel under and Gorn. the wall and Gendel and Gorn. Yeah. So there there's like so many ways. It feels like when George what George is doing with is he's playing with these number of ideas and he hasn't really found one that fits him as far as which one he wants to pursue. See, I, I can get behind that. Yeah, that it's not. There's a lot of possibilities. I just think that um, a lot of them don't sound very plausible. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's why George hasn't like settled on one. He yeah. can't really figure out. I get behind the horn because George R. R. Martin has talked about like while he's an atheist now, his deep roots in being raised Catholic. Uh, yeah, and there's that very prominent the horn of Jericho. Story. Yep. There's the prominent story about the Horn of Jericho. Or the Wall of Jericho. Yeah, the horn's bringing down the Wall of Jericho. Could you, will someone say- Sing the song for you? Yes. Josh about the Battle of Jericho. 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 Josh the Battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. This isn't, this is not explaining anything as enjoyable <laughs> as it is. Kings of Gideon. Oh my Joshua God. marches his army around yeah. the city of Jericho, uh, <laughs> blasting horns for what, seven days, I think mm-hmm. it is. Seven, seven days. days. Like he's blasting horns this whole time, etc. And at the end of the seventh day, the wall comes tumbling down. And Theon says, I'm going to kill the guy who's... No, sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I'm with Jen on this. I think I'm perfectly happy to accept that a dragon did it because... If if it's a horn, then the question is, why hasn't anybody accidentally blown it yet? 
like well, John well, yeah, almost ever. accidentally blew it in Clash of Kings. But it's been like ten thousand years. Somebody's gonna pick up that thing. John blows it Whereas all the time. A dragon makes. <laughs> oh my god, a dragon makes good sense because if this is supposed to be a prison for the others, they're never supposed to be able to have access to a dragon fire. Oh uh, yeah. That sure. it would take the Valyrians to release them, and this, which unfortunately leads back into the forty chess by the Night's King, which I don't like, but. Them actually getting a dragon and having that take it down makes more sense than, I think, a lot of the other options. So, does this mean that in the books, maybe it would make the most sense for Euron to steal a dragon and then burn down the wall? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, like, the horn being a dragon binder horn that then the dragon takes down the wall seems valid to me. That's fine, yeah. I just think there's going to be more lore there than just, mm, yeah, oh, yeah. look, they got a dragon. Sure. Oops. The the important thing is that the wall is going to come down in the books, and the wall comes down in the show. Yes. I think it'll be different vehicles, although it could be similar, although I don't think it will be, in my own personal opinion. But the wall comes down, and it's it's been set up since well before Game of Thrones was re- was released. It was probably one of the first ideas that George ever came up with. Yeah. And having a wall, it's almost it's it's Chekhov's wall. Chekhov's wall, right? If you have a wall, it has to fall. <laughs> and if you have a fist of the first men, the fists of the first men must lift out of the ground so the fist can slam and punch through the wall. Sure. That's maybe. Uh, is that the geologist perspective? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's from Star Trek, if I remember. Someone is going to fire the mountain at the wall. Perfect. I like what way you're thinking. With his little fist helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The Star Trek answer is that Tormund is Darmok and Beric is Jalad and Eastwatch is Tanagra. Sure. I agree with that. That's not a bad (laughs) reference, actually. (laughs) Unlike your usual Star Trek. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. So we're all on the same page that Tormund and Beric survived. At least the wall coming down, right? I thought it was confirmed somewhere in like a an inside the episode or something. They were talking about it on History of Westeros. I mean, I would say how, but then again, the somehow they brought the wall down so there was this perfectly clear path for the others to just walk on through. It melted, it's fine. Yeah. While everyone ran downstairs and that's why they died, Tormund and Beric ran west along the wall. Yeah, I think if they have the budget for next season, they're going to flash back a couple minutes into the end of last season. Because it feels like that scene where Sam sees the White Walker at the end of season two, and then they jump skip to where Sam's just walking through the snow. Because they didn't have the budget to have the ice polar bear, zombie polar bear sequence at the Fist of the First Men. So they just skipped it. Here, if they have the budget, they're going to jump back and they're going to have like Beric and Tormund ice luge <laughs> down the end of nice. the wall, like into the sea, and then swim to a ship as they get off because somebody has to reveal the wall falls that's true so it makes sense that they would be the ones to carry it although at some points in the show people just seem to know what has happened so or I don't not know. or they or if they don't have the budget they just pick it up where they're standing in the rubble outside of east watch and they're fighting some whites and they run to a ship or they just they're on a ship already sailing down or they're sending raven who knows they could do it a number of different ways or they just arrive at winterfell yeah yeah that too well bran saw through the ravens that was how we saw so bran oh. saw and that was um true uh earlier in the season they they trusted bran's word true yeah. true although it felt like the ravens were scattering cuz we stopped following but i guess bran saw it yeah as duke nukem rode his dragon up to the wall <laughs> Mm-hmm. Anybody feel like that was a Duke Nukem shot where he's like the glare in his eyeballs as he's like bouncing up and down on the dragon? Never mind. I felt like it was the least believable of all of the dragon CGI. 
Maybe my suspension of disbelief ends at zombie dragons breathing blue fire. I thought since uh, Michael called out WoW earlier, I felt like the Knight's King was a player in the game. So like his face was blank while everyone yes. else was like acting, reacting to him. <laughs> yes. He's a WoW player and he's just running through. He got his cold Weber flying. That's a great call. That's why his Thank face you. never moves. He's just, he's the player character. Everyone else is the yeah. NPCs. Sometimes he does the chicken dance. Sometimes he bows, but most of the time he just sits there. <laughs> That's right. The Night's King walks up, you know, slash dance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All Michael wants is a facial expression. That's, just That's all I all I want. Yeah. So in general, the North is next level boned, right? Yes. Those kids that they put in those castles are like yeah, they're done. They're they're totally gonna stop that army for them. <laughs> Little Ned Umber. Those kids are coming back as whites to attack Winterfell, <laughs> yeah. and Sansa's gonna be like, "See, I told you." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the end of our season seven. Anybody else? Have any thoughts? It's all right. Ratings. Yeah. Let's do our ratings on a, on a scale of apples to dingoes, as is tradition. I'm going to go ahead and give this episode a solid apple for the season. On a, on a season. Oh, for the season? On a oh, season curve? Episode. Yeah, I was going to say on a season curve. I It's so hard to, to compare them to all the other 60-something episodes of Game of Thrones all at once in your head. But this was... I was so entertained and... Just so many satisfying things happened, both satisfying in terms of, hooray, Littlefinger's dead, and satisfying in terms of, oh, the wall's finally coming down. It was hard for me to not like this episode, I guess, because I just, you know, I was I was hooting and hollering and going, oh, look, it's Rhaegar, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It, it was it was getting all the, the Song of Ice Fire fan me stirred up, I guess. So I'm going with an, okay. an apple. I'm going to go with an apple minus. I am happy that they finally paid off all the things they were rushing through for the season in this episode, and that... A lot of them were satisfying, and I enjoyed watching it, and that's kind of what I watch it for. I watch it to be entertained. There's different parts of my brain for analysis and making sure everything makes sense, but I thought this was a very enjoyable episode and a way to end the season. I'm going to go with a grapefruit. Okay. Because okay. Um, I've been trying to think of like fruits that I like, but that aren't like top tier fruits but i thoroughly enjoy grapefruits um you know when the time is right and since it's on a curb you know like yeah i enjoy grapefruits my rating would be like i think it might be the third best episode of the season so i'm gonna give it like a coconut plus i'm not grading on a curve for the season i'm grading it on like episodes overall i was thoroughly entertained and they touched on some good stuff. Um, I didn't feel like it was a super winner, as you would expect from the end of the season. Yeah. I felt like overall this season, um, the first part, I think this is untrue to most of the seasons, but I think the first episode two, three, and four were more solid than the last three episodes of the season, which I can't really say about any other seasons prior. So a bit different for me. It was unique and it was something different, I guess, in that regard. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Walda. Uh, I can't believe nobody has given this an an A for Egan. Oh. Oh. oh, yeah. We missed oh. that. We should have given it an egg. I think I'd give it an Egan the sixth. <laughs> not your favorite Egan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, not my favorite Egan, oh. but, you know. A smashing hit. Oh, my God. Oh, Eliana. <laughs> give it a young grip. Jen's disappointed in Give it a Harry Strickland's elephant. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I give it four and a half lemon cakes out of five. Oh, Sounds good. Wow, that's a lot. On a curve or no? No, I don't believe in it. Okay. Word. 
I'm gonna give it a chopsticks plus hmm. objectively. That's the objective okay. rating compared to the rest of the sixty episodes. Okay. Chopsticks. And I'll that's right. And I'm gonna give it a Is that better than a spork? Yes. Sporks are awful. And I'll give it a blueberry minus compared to the rest of the season. Okay. Um, uh, we might as well announce it now. So right now we're doing our uh, episode seven. Uh, what is this a review? What, what the Maester Monthly? The episode seven for Maester Monthly. Episode seven um, is going to be with uh, the lovely Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb from A Scene of Ice and Fire. So right now we're uh... only talking about episode seven, season seven. But in September, we're going to wrap up the entirety of Season 7. Yay! Well, this has been uh, Episode 10 of The Quill and Tankard, uh, in which we discussed the finale of Game of Thrones Season 7. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, of course, to everyone on the subreddit for creating such good posts and comments that we can talk about on this podcast. As always, you can find us on YouTube at Maester Monthly, where you can see Aaron's fantastic photoshops. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can find us on Twitter, at Maester Monthly, where we're very funny. Uh, usually not not me, I don't think I've ever tweeted, but it's it's Eliana or Aaron, usually. Usually Aaron. I do some. Oh, and Matt, apparently, and they're all very, very funny. Oh, I didn't know that Matt very little. Got, went on Ninja. there. They're all I very get in there funny. once in a while. So, so go check it out. Uh, and of course, our, our website is maestermonthly.wordpress.com. Follow us. Like us, smash that MF and like button. I have been Bookshelf Stud, aka Aegon. And I have been Glass Table Girl, aka Aegon. And I've been Joe Magician, also known as Aegon. I've been Aaron, also known as Aegon. I'm Jen, aka Jen Snow. And I've been Fat Walda, also known as Aegon. Who am I? Are you my mother? Thoros? <laughs> <laughs> And I've been Brendan B. Fish, also known as, objectively, Aegon. <laughs> that was so sultry. Yeah. <laughs> this is people. This is Quill and Tanker after hours. Objectively. Right, uh, uh, I'm ready to clap out. We did it. Quietly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.